Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. And Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you can hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's yes. because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's a very rough quality, and we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So Yeah, it's rough. But I'd say, yeah, I'd, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift, too. And, and Night, Night Shift. Shift. Yeah. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes us sound so lovely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes, too. Like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, <laughs> as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. Um, well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things. And you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different. We refine that over time. Yeah. So, so yeah, you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher, but it's the same quality Losers Club content and that these, you've always wanted. these episodes nearly killed us. Uh, the <laughs> Night Shift episode, I got the flu because we recorded... For everything, we recorded for eleven hours straight. Yeah, I think. two yeah. episodes back to back, covering all all what twenty stories, all twenty stories, and, and the movie, and the movies. Oof. It was exhausting. I was, I think, towards the end of the episode, I started fading away. Dan started uh, crying. Dan started crying. <laughs> I cried in the Shining episode, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th th these episodes are special. They're very good episodes. They're very special episodes. But we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever <laughs> because obviously. Obviously, as you could hear from us right now, that's just not the case. Yeah, if you're just popping in to hear like, oh, I love Salem's Lot. I'm going to check out this new podcast. Why does it sound like they're recording underwater? You know, we just never really thought that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we were testing things out. We were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast. And luckily, a lot of you guys did care. And you listened and supported us and followed us on social media. And so we were able to, you know, beef up the sound, make things sound better, expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh, as it is now. So. Because so much has changed mm -hmm. since 2017, not only with us, but the whole world at large That's and you're right. going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes so why don't we uh why don't we let you go off and venture into what we like to call 
King's Dominion. Let's start off with Carrie. Hello, my name is Randall Colburn. I am a senior staff writer at Consequences Sound. And um, we're doing this podcast because, A, uh, we at Consequence of Sound are very, very big Stephen King fans. We've all kind of grown up with Stephen King and brought him into our adulthoods and, um, you know, never let him leave our hearts. And uh, there's a reason that we're doing the podcast now. Uh, I mean, Stephen King's always been popular. His books will always be bestsellers. His movies will, well, I guess they won't always do that well at the box office, but um, they will always be made. And uh, it seems like we're in sort of a bizarre sort of Stephen King renaissance right now, uh, spurred mainly by the reveal that uh, the Dark Tower series, the golden god of Stephen King, uh, you know, books and, you know, kind of how you know you found another real Stephen King fan, is being made into a film with Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey. And, um, you know, we have yet to see uh, or hear about how that might go. But, you know, let's all say we're cautiously optimistic. Um, And then there's also a new It movie in the works. um, And a lot of photos have been circulating of this new Pennywise, one of which was uh, in a a tube and it looked very odd. Um, And then... uh, uh, there's, you know, several others. There was talk of a new stand being made uh, that Ben Affleck was briefly attached to. And then, um, you know, there's other films in production coming along. Gerald's Game, uh, horror director Mike Flanagan, who just released the excellent Ouija Origin of Evil. It's actually very good. Uh, Gerald's Game uh, is on the docket. 1922 is also being made. And a TV series of the Mr. Mercedes trilogy of books that... Um, Stephen King wrote uh, and released over the last couple of years. That's being made into a TV series. And then also there was, you know, 112263, which was a very successful uh, TV series on Hulu that we were all big fans of, as well as uh, Under the Dome, which I don't think anyone on this planet Earth was a fan of, but the book was really good. So basically, Stephen King is still, to this day, in 2017, he's everywhere. And that's really exciting for us because we love him. And so we figured it would be a good time, especially leading up to The Dark Tower, for someone to kind of go down uh, the Stephen King rabbit hole, just go book by book in chronological order and not just explore the themes and the characters and, you know, what resonates about the book or doesn't, but also explore sort of the adaptations because almost every Stephen King book has at least one uh, film, television, uh, comic book, uh, or even stage play adaptation um, of his work. It's it's everywhere. So we figured this would be a good time to do that. Um, but before we get started, we're um, obviously talking about Carrie today, uh, his first book. Before we get started with that, though, uh, we're going to go around and kind of just introduce ourselves and talk about how we got into Stephen King. As I said, my name is Randall. I got into Stephen King when I was, uh, uh, when the Stand miniseries came out, which was a big event in the 90s that I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've either remember that or you have seen it. When I was a kid, that, what was it, like eight hours, that epic was, uh, you know, really exciting to me. I loved the ensemble cast. I loved, you know, the darkness. I loved uh, the good versus evil, the big battle and everything. And sort of after I saw that, I became sort of obsessed um, with the idea of Stephen King, but I was still a little too scared to try and read one of his books. Um, But then my grandma had The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Christine in her basement, and I used to sneak down there and just read through and uh, dare myself to read all the gory scenes. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, for Christmas one year, I was given The Stand. 
because they knew I loved the movie. And that was the first book I read top to bottom. And after that, I was pretty much a convert. And uh, my grandma gave me those three books soon after I read those. And then um, I'm still reading them all today. So uh, and then uh, sitting next to me is Consequence of Sound editor-in-chief Michael Rothman. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I you know I I grew up uh, just loving uh, scary stories and horror movies, and I don't know what it was about that genre that has always resonated with me. But uh, you know, Stephen King being the basically looking over the overseer of modern horror, it was only inevitable that I was going to find him. But I th- I think honestly it, it might have been the poster for Pet Cemetery <laughs> that that did it for me. I remember seeing it in. Uh, theaters as a kid and I also remember seeing it in the video stores and there's just something about the way that I was like always obsessed with like scrapbooking and collaging and there's something about that poster that's like really haunting and just like you see in the eye and I think as a kid that really hit me hard and I didn't really realize that it was Stephen King until I guess like a couple years later um, and when I connected the fact that like similar to you Randall like my parents also had like a lot of the books uh, in my in our house, and there were like the old hardcovers that they had like the original artwork on there. And I remember The Shining being like terrified of it because like the photo of Danny um, or the drawing of Danny on there it has like the kid with like the silver eyes or something like that, and it just like really scared me as a kid. Um, so I, I mean, I was I was always into Stephen King mostly through the sadly through the, the really awful adaptations that that I had seen, I, especially like um not not pet cemetery because i love that one but there's like a few of them that i had i had watched just growing up that you know clearly like now we know this like not as faithful to the original books as they are and i think sometime in grade school i just started reading them alongside like goosebumps and whatnot and it just got really really hooked so you know since then it's knowing now how how much of an expansive universe he has it's been interesting to kind of be able to sort of how cinema you know cinephiles and movie goers today are enjoying all the cinematic universes in the marvel universe or star wars it's kind of like how i I look at stephen king right now it's just you know there's so much to explore there's so much to learn there's so much to um to really sink your teeth into uh no pun intended for uh, the next (laughs) next episode um but uh you know it's so that 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 was always something that, that resonated with me so like just seeing the fact that like all these stories are coming alive again and with filmmakers that really want to, you know, pay pay respects to like the source material, it's going to be like really interesting to see this new generation of of uh, films that come out. And not that's not to discredit any of the films that that, that came before, because I love those films like like crazy. And um, what I've really liked is revisiting these books from an adult eye, because some of these are, especially now that we've been going back from square one and not seeing them from like either a high schooler or a grade schooler like point of view it's seeing it from an adult that like is able to understand like where king was coming from with a lot of these books and i think that's what's going to be really the most exciting part of this podcast is kind of just wrestling not with just the themes and the the characters and whatnot but also just like where stephen king's head was at when he was making these books and i and i don't you know i think that's like a big part of uh his his you know his catalog that a lot of people forget is that it does come from one mind and you know it's it's easy to forget about that when you realize like how much there is um out there so yeah I, i've been on like you know just it's been you know king has uh haunted me for for uh decades at this point it's so, been a wild ride it's been a wild ride <laughs> let's move on to uh consequence of sound contributor and uh a pretty badass musician matt gerber 
Uh, that's my, enough. Yeah, uh, see you guys later. Uh, no, uh, my introduction to the King, I have to think back, and Justin will probably correct me, uh, my brother Justin. Uh, the first thing I ever remember really seeing and resonating with me is um, the It miniseries. I remember being at my grandparents' house, uh, which, uh, you know, they magically had cable for the first time probably mm-hmm. ever. And uh, for some reason, they allowed us to watch it. Now, I don't remember how old I was, Justin. Do you know? You're probably, I guess you were, what, Six. eight? God, Seven, well, eight. I was young. And they let us watch this thing. And terrifying. I think I had a recurring dream about it, uh, you know, uh, seeing his feet underneath the, the garage door uh, for years after that. And um, why I'm a big Stephen <laughs> King fan, I don't know, because it was such a point of, uh, of horror in my, my young childhood. But um, no, I, I, I went from it to seeing some of the other miniseries and whatnot, uh, The Stand, Tommyknockers, uh, and I always loved that stuff. But I, ne- I hadn't read anything. I think the first book I actually read was uh, the Dark Tower was the Gunslinger in the sixth grade, and um, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I, I didn't continue to read those, but I, I moved on after that. Uh, I, I, I think it really, I think it really shaped my love for horror and scary stories, as Mike was saying. Um, and from then on, I just kind of bonded with my older brother with horror movies and whatnot. And uh, we just kind of, kind of dove into that more and more and more as we went, as we went on. Um, yeah, but that was kind of my, my first introduction was a scary clown. <laughs> Very cool. Um, coming up next, we've got a uh, consequence of sound senior staff writer and pop culture polymath <laughs> Dan Caffrey. Hey everyone, I think Randall's saying that because I, I think at this point I'm the only person here who's read every single one of his books. Right? I'm not saying that to like. I think you, yeah. What about all the short stories? No, not all the short oh, stories, yeah. Bad. And you know, I haven't Wait, have read... Have you read End of Watch? Yeah, I read End of Watch, oh, yeah, okay. recently, yeah. Uh, but I haven't read that That's Bizarre... Good. Was it B- uh, Bizarre Bad Dreams? Is that the one that I, just I have, I've read that. Oh. oh so well, you and I together, a little tag team, Voltron. Of... I think between all of us, we've read them. Absolutely. Yes, yes. I would agree with and, and of course, um, listeners will obviously be re- rereading them as the podcast goes throughout. So we, we're not going to do an episode where none of us have read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be interesting, though. But I actually got into Stephen King through a, uh, not a lesser known book, but maybe not one of his more notable ones. Um, Like all of you, my parents had copies of a lot of the first editions of the books laying around, and I always wanted to read them. Like I would, I saw, I remember seeing the cover for Needful Things and the dark half and asking my parents what they were about, and they would tell me, but they would always say, well, you're too young to read this, you know, when I was seven or eight. And then for whatever reason, when I was nine, which is when the Stan miniseries came out, um, I hadn't watched it, but that renewed my interest in it, and like really begging them to read Stephen King. And I don't know why, I don't know why this age was suddenly fine for me to start reading them. My dad said, "Okay, you can you can try this one out," and it was Cycle of the Werewolf. <laughs> I, I don't know because I don't know if it's because I had pictures or something. Um, but my dad was like, "All right, you try this one out. If you can handle it, you know, you can move on to The Shining and all that." And so I read Cycle of the Werewolf. I, I didn't necessarily. Love it. It's not his best book by any means, but it did have these really great full-color illustrations by Bernie Wrightson, who I had liked a lot at that point for his comic book work. Um, he did a version of Frankenstein that Mac actually got me for Christmas a few years ago uh, that I enjoyed. I loved his work on Swamp Thing. Um, so I knew who Bernie Wrightson was, and he, of course, ended up illustrating the uh, uh, complete and unabridged version of The Stand, uh, which came out not long after that. Uh, but anyway, so that was like a good gateway. It had pictures. It's a bit shorter of a book. I think it's even... I think he... Cause of the novella on uh, 
doesn't he? Yeah, it's not even really a novel. I mean, no, it's and it's... like a, like a half-part graphic yeah. novel part. And it's broken up by the months, right? Like, there's yes. the calendar structure. It's a cycle so, of, yeah. um, The cycle of the months and the... Were- the year and the werewolf, <laughs> um, which we'll, of course, get to once we talk about that book. So that was the first one I read, and I didn't necessarily love it, but I could tell that that wasn't the... Uh, that wasn't the full King experience, you know? Like, when I saw, when I picked up The Stand and Needful Things and the Tommyknockers, which are these kind of, you know, house brick-sized books, I could tell, like, okay, this is where the real gold gold is. So, although Cycle of the Werewolf is certainly not my favorite King book, I do credit it for getting me into the other stuff. And, um, hey, and thanks to Dad for letting me finally read it. And after that, he would, like, once I got through that, he was like, all right, you can read the rest of it. So, yeah. That's my, that is my King experience. <laughs> That's cool. Then we've got uh, Consequence of Sound contributor, senior staff writer, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, host of Gerber and Gerber with his brother, Mac Gerber, which I failed to mention with Mac, but uh, Justin Gerber. Hi, uh, internet personality, Justin Gerber. <laughs> not, quite, not quite internet star, a little Justo from Damon. Um, well, again, I feel like a lot of our um, experiences begin with our grandparents, and once yeah. again, it, uh, it begins with my grandmother who had an original hard cover version of Misery. I remember mm-hmm. I'd you know, check out her books and there was this picture of this guy in a wheelchair with his head in his hands and in this large shadow of this person holding an axe. And I thought, what's this book? <laughs> um, I was about 10 or 11 years old. And although I was not allowed to watch horror movies that young, I don't know how my brother was able to watch it, but that's another story. Um, I was allowed to read Misery. And so Misery was my first Stephen King book. And I guess I was, like I said, about 10 or 11 and that's why I think I've been disturbed for about 25 years or so. <laughs> uh, worth it, by the way. Great book. Still a great book. We can get into that later on. Um, shortly after Misery, uh, I was part of the Stephen King book club. Do you remember the commercials? No. Where you, I think this was uh, related to Time Magazine. You would get every month an original hardcover of a Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. And I remember this was around the time, I guess this was probably 94 when Insomnia came out. I want to say yeah, it was around 94. Right. My favorite book. <laughs> uh, great, great book. But I got the, So I got the hardcover of that, and after that, every month or so, I remember I received the Dead Zone hardcover, mm-hmm. um, Cujo, etc., etc., Christine. And, um, I mean, I've been riding the King train uh, ever since. I love them. Uh, so that's our crew. Uh, we might have a few others popping in here or there. Uh, the Losers Club is open to uh, many, many members. Any loser. <laughs> Any loser is welcome who loves Stephen King. Ah, uh, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it exactly. We're going to begin by talking about a little thing called Carrie, the book that Stephen wrote, you know, while drinking a lot of wine and uh, basically threw it in the trash and his wife fished it out. From what I remember, they were, uh, Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha King, also a writer, uh, were living in a trailer park at the time and it wasn't his first, first book. He had had a bunch of false starts and other books and books that he calls trunk novels that he had put away. But he was working on this one, and he'd thrown it away, and Tabitha dug it out of the trash. And uh, I believe the story goes that she read it, and she felt that he really captured what it was like being a a girl in high school, like a misfit in high school, and was sort of the uh, catalyst for him getting it published. She was a big uh, help and inspiration for that, I believe, is how the story goes. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's how Carrie came to fruition, of course. The rest, uh, as they say, is history. <laughs> but, Great. Uh, then uh, we're going to begin with sort of, you know, a reminder of what uh, Carrie is about. Justin? Uh, this comes from the back of the 2002 republication of Carrie. Uh, the brief synopsis is this. 
Carrie may be picked on by her classmates, but she has a gift. She can move things with her mind. Doors lock, candles fall. This is her power and her problem. Then, an act of kindness, as spontaneous as the vicious taunts of her classmates, offers Carrie a chance to be a normal, until an unexpected cruelty turns her gift into a weapon of horror and destruction that no one will ever forget. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I gotta say, that's, that's giving away, like, the whole... <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, that well, is, horrific things happen. That is what's funny about Carrie's, because, of course, it's famous for the pig's blood scene and the prom scene and, and the actual destruction she causes... But Mac brings up a good point. That doesn't happen until, I mean, the last act of the book, really. Mm-hmm. It's uh, all alluded to throughout. I think a good way to get into uh, a Stephen King book is what we like to call the hook. And uh, I think with every Stephen King book, no matter how complex it is, no matter how um, you know nuanced and uh, you know twisty turvy it becomes, he usually has sort of like one central hook on which to sort of um, you know hang your hat on a story. And I think in Carrie, sort of that hook is uh, telekinesis, the idea of telekinesis, and um, that that is Carrie's, uh, you know, way to overcome or, you know, um, or in many ways succumb to uh, what she's struggling through. Um, And so uh, how do we feel, um, what do we feel like the telekinesis represents? What are some of the greater themes at work in Carrie? Justin? Uh, I think there's a lot of analogy, especially in the book, um, to, I mean, she, she kind of comes into her full powers once she has her period. So I think the telekinesis and her full grasp of the telekinesis has a lot to do with her blossoming and becoming a woman and entering into her, her fullest potential. So I think there's a lot going on there. And obviously, um, the repression has a lot to do mm-hmm. with it. There's a lot of repression going on. And I feel like that's what ends up happening ultimately with her telekinetic, her telekinetic abilities has a lot to do with her 15, 16 years of being totally repressed and having this explosion going on. And that's a pretty classic theme, I think, even in comic books. Like in X-Men, most of the mutants' powers don't become unlocked until they're in high school, and a lot of it is associated with being picked on. I'm, you're No matter who you are in high school, even if you're the prom queen or whoever, the most popular person, the most unpopular person... It's a time of super intense emotion, no matter which way you twist it. A lot of first-time relationships are happening. Every, every, it feels like everything that you're feeling is just amplified that much. And so I think that ties into the unleashing of her powers. And, of course, they happen you know, with her period, like you said, and also with her getting tampons thrown at her in the, uh, in the shower while she's having her period. So I think it's this mixture of um, normal biological things that would happen to any woman, but also uh, really traumatic abuse that happens to you in high school if you're if you're uh, picked on i think it also could be kind of ascribed to like the idea of a sexual reawake or sexual awakening mm-hmm. if you think i mean like the, the whole like idea of the prom is this mm-hmm. like you know explosion or this you know the, she's she's definitely basically i mean she's basically like taking her powers and just in in, in using them to her fullest potential and in exploring her own i mean at this you, you see her exploring her own body and her her own ways and her own design throughout the whole book leading up to the scene where she's actually the moment Mm -hmm. and i think you could kind of like parallel that with just our own like just finding our own sexual identity prom's such a big deal in high school and it is like you know and i and i think again like we'll, we'll probably talk about that soon is is that's why i feel like that the time period this is set in is so important too because it is such an antiquated like look in certain respects of just how um even just like the sexual, like oh, you know, 
how we find our own sexual identities and such. Yeah, I also think it's interesting because you have these people basically talking about her her telekinetic abilities. Um, And obviously, it's it's extremely dangerous. I mean, Mm -hmm. everything that she does in this movie... A book. It, or <laughs> book, excuse me. <laughs> Everything she does in the book, whether it's, you know, inadvertent or, or you know, unconscious, uh, it, it's it's always something that ends up being pretty dangerous, you know, uh, with people around her. And, and it's very funny because I feel like so much of the book is from her perspective, but so much of the book is also... Uh, you know, blaming her for all these things that happen and all these terrible things that are happening to other people, even though she's really the one being wronged. Um, and I guess it, it, it's it's interesting that King decided to take such a scientific uh, point of view with it, mm-hmm. and so much of it is steeped in God and mm-hmm. her mother and the relationship with religion and everything, uh, which I also thought was really interesting. Yeah, I'd say that, I mean, I would describe Carrie as a coming-of-age tragedy. Yes. Um, it's... It's less of, I think in coming-of-age stories, they're usually telling the story of someone struggling with, uh, you know, uh, getting older, coping with their bodies changing, and dealing with social dynamics as they change. Uh, The problem with Carrie is that she sort of succumbs to all those things. And I think that one way to look at it is that, you know, the telekinesis in a lot of ways represents sort of what Dan was saying, um, you know, youthful passion, youthful emotion, um, and sort of pent-up aggression in a lot of ways. And um, and how dangerous it can be when that is, you know, unleashed at an age where you're still very much in transition. Um, you know, in the end, I think what is notable about Carrie is that, and this is something that is in my craw a little bit after watching the 2013 remake of Carrie. Um, <laughs> which we which all we'll, love. Which, which, is, by the way. <laughs> which we'll talk about later in the episode. But um, Carrie, to me isn't a revenge story. It's not a story about a girl getting revenge on the bullies. It's a story about a girl who, in my mind at least, was sort of unable to transcend or overcome um, not just the bullies and bullying um, of high school, but also, um, you know, just the the tragedies that she grew up with and the repression that she faced from her mother and things of that nature and how all of those things, um, you know, and I'm not blaming Carrie as such, but some people... Uh, are faced with such things that, you know, they lash out, you know, in very violent ways. And we see that also, you know, in Rage, the Stephen King uh, novella that he put in the Bachman books um, about a school shooter, which we'll be talking about in a few episodes. So I think that, I think maybe some themes about, um, you know, repression, but also unchecked rage um, is, I think those themes are pretty prevalent in Stephen King's mind early on. And I and, and again, this is all like on my part, definitely assumption and just inference of what I've been able to see through just the surrounding details and the context of which this book was published. But I do think that like, although King based Carrie on two composite uh, like girls really? that he like that he had known in high school and growing up, um, one was like an outcast that I think wore like the same clothes and then wore something different one day and was like she got even more made fun of when she dressed nice and stuff. yeah and like and but I, I do think that he instills a lot of himself into this story too you know not only just through character design of the outcast i mean if you think about it like just 
I mean, I, I'm coming from a creative writing background because um, I decided to take that lucrative position in my life, and uh, <laughs> and I, I, you know, and I remember sitting there, and and you know, I grew up loving genre, and I and I love, I grew up loving like like sh- short stories of horror and 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 um, and action and all these adventures and serials and stuff. And that was always frowned upon in like in college situations, you know. Like they always say, "Oh no, you need to read like you know." And I love Hemingway; he's one of my favorite. He's probably my favorite writer of all time. But I don't need to always read Hemingway all the time. And like I, I was always averse to the fact that like you have to sit there and love literary spectrums of you know these sad stories and dramatic stories prestige and that, that are prestige writers. And I think that he's always had to rebuff against that. And if you think about it, like when and it's in this book, like that that I feel like that 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 sort of I don't not it's not vitriolic it's very subtle and I think a lot of it's in the, the way that he puts it into some of the the style and the structure and format which we'll get into in a second but I do think that 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 sort of mentality is really uh, a part of how he's the conceit of Carrie also back to your point about King kind of being frowned upon in universities and whatnot I mean I think there's a place for everything and I think I love William Faulkner if every novel was a William Faulkner-esque novel, I would blow my head off. Um, you know, similar sentiments to, you know, if every book, Dan, was Thomas Pynchon's V. Yeah. Mean, wouldn't that get a little exhausting oh, after mean, a while? And Tom- you love V. But, so my point is, not everything can be Faulkner, not everything can be King, but not everything can be Faulkner. And I think there's a place for, for every type of genre, every type of, of, of novel, or any type of story, really. And, well, and I'd be curious, maybe I should have looked into this before we record this, but I do wonder what... King's, I guess, literary reception was when this came out because he did go on to win the O. Henry Award for um, the short story "The Man in the Black Suit," and you know yeah. he, of course, it was just great, and he, of course, went on to write some novels like Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three that are you know re- really widely respected in um, in literary like prestige literary circles. So when Carrie came out, I guess, do you guys think that I know I don't at all deny that King himself certainly felt like a misfit at that point. I mean, he was living in a trailer park and he had several kids to raise and I I don't know if he was picked on like Carrie was in high school I don't think he was but I don't think he was the prom king or something either you know so I guess do you guys know um just when he kind of came on the scene was was he looked down upon by I guess some senior critics like I know Harold Bloom like doesn't like Stephen King and I I can't stand listening to Harold Bloom talk but um yeah I, I was just curious if you guys knew anything about that I mean, I don't, I, I couldn't talk about that specifically, but I would say that um, I'd, I, I think that maybe his reputation for being a pulpier novelist, mm-hmm. I I wish that I could speak on this, um, you know, contextually after Carrie came out, but I, I think that that reputation probably didn't start to crystallize until um, yeah. he followed this up with a book about vampires, you know, That's a good point. and then he followed up the sh- that with a ghost story, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that was, and then his books were selling so well that I think that people started to just look at the broad, you know, like we call it the hook and just be like, oh, well, he just writes the genre fair, but I think when Carrie came out, I wouldn't be surprised because it's not an overtly supernatural book. It is about telekinesis, but it's also very much rooted in uh, strong relationships, mother-daughter, school dynamics, um, you know, class dynamics, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, and I think that uh, this would have been a hard book at the the time to just sort of sniff at because I think that there is some really powerful stuff in here that, you know, isn't just rooted in genre necessarily. Yeah. Well, the structure alone isn't your normal A to Z structure either. The way, like you said, we alluded to it earlier. I mean, yeah. a lot of it's told through journals, through uh, special hearings, through 
uh, My Name is Sue Snell, where mm-hmm. Sue Snell tells her side of the story and just different versions of the story, so it's not all clean cut. And I think that's something that can't really be ignored, especially from a, I guess he was probably 27 at the time when he wrote it. Yeah, so why do we think that Stephen King decided to write the book in the way that he did? Because he goes from, you know, sort of third-person uh, narration with um, uh, Carrie and her mother and sort of Carrie's perspective. But then we also visit, um, a, you know, books that were written after the events of Carrie. One written by one of the other protagonists, uh, Sue Snell. Um, uh, you know, one of the girls who picked on Carrie in the beginning, but in the end tried to become an ally to her. Um, and then also a book called, uh, what is it? Silences or like the, the shadow exploded was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And so why do you think we revisit all these different, um, you know, books and, and narratives and, you know, what sort of picture of Carrie is King trying to create through this structure? Well, it's interesting because, even though he has several different sources cited throughout the book, uh, memoirs and newspaper clippings and whatnot, and or just firsthand accounts, they all see he doesn't really play up the unreliable narrator thing. Like everyone sees Carrie the same way, mm-hmm. more or less, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe some of the people who picked on her, they they aren't quite sympathetic to her. But as far as the facts go, there there isn't a lot that's disputed, right? But so among the different people, and and King hasn't. He's had he's had other books that certainly include um, it does this like they'll include newspaper clippings or whatever else but for the most part he I don't think he's fully relied on that kind of structure um, to the extent that he doesn't carry in any other book I'm wondering if it if it's a boon or a hindrance to the book I like Carrie a lot as a novel but I, the structure's always been interesting to me because I I never remember it being in that structure so I wonder how effective it is and if if he should or should not have done it I, I like I mean the thing is I. Like a lot, I think everybody here saw the movie before they read the book. Yes. So as you go into the book, you kind of know where it's all heading. But if you try to read the novel as a total version, of reading the novel, we can get into sexuality later on. I'm saying as a total, <laughs> as a total novice, you've never read, you've never heard about Carrie. You're just reading for the first time. There are a lot of great moments where you'll you'll hear the story of Carrie and her mother in high school as we're going along, and then we'll flash forward to the future, and then there'll be little hints as to what's to come. Mm-hmm. It's not laid out right away what's going to happen. We know that something awful is going to happen. And I think taking that format, and it's something that King has really excelled at over the years, is kind of dropping little bombs as to, like, yeah. and, we, and, and we never saw them again. Or, you know, and that's the last time they saw each other. I mean, and then you keep going on. I think I actually do enjoy that format. The only thing I think is clunky is a lot of the telekinetic um, discussion, like from your, your scientific journal mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. portions of the novel. I don't know if I don't know if telekinesis will ever be dated since we don't really know the full truth of telekinesis, <laughs> but it's sort of treated in a way that nobody's ever talked about telekinesis before. Mm-hmm. And I guess in 1974, maybe people weren't talking about telekinesis, but I feel it's so in, entrenched in pop culture now, where everybody knows whether if you've got psychic powers and what that means. Well, and, and a lot a, of it's dedicated to to the book itself. And that's another reason I think that a lot of you know these failed remakes fail because they just don't quite work when it's set now when everyone's so in the know with these things mm-hmm. and the supernatural mm-hmm. and you know because you've had you know ex- exposure to all this stuff through the internet and whatnot i mean it, you know you bring up an interesting point which is like 
reading Carrie without knowing about the pig's blood in the prom. Mm. Is is any could anybody in this culture even do that now? In a lot of ways, Carrie um, proms have sort of become uh, you know uh, intrinsically tied with. Uh, the iconography of Carrie, mm-hmm. the the bloody you know figure on the stage, and of course you know we still love proms, but it's like, <laughs> but it's like um, I think that there is always sort of the joke that oh what if you know somebody pulls a Carrie at prom and and things of that nature. It's a very um, iconic sort of thing, and I almost feel like the it's it's interesting to think of people reading the book, and I think what Stephen King was trying to do by hinting at um, a massive. Uh, tragedy because they hint at Tommy's death oh, before yeah. it happens. They hint at all the people you know dying in the like they they basically hint that something bad will happen at prom throughout the whole book. And I think that in a weird way, what he was doing to set up tension because Stephen King loves in his books to uh, hint at future tragedy. Yeah. Some, I know sometimes it's it's really cheesy and it'll be like you know see you later. He wouldn't see them later, you know. And I, that's an exaggeration, but but I think that um i think that you know he has a penchant for doing that but i think him setting it up in the book actually in a weird way it sort of still works today because we already know if you're reading carrie you probably know what happens because it's so tied into pop culture but you know when you're reading that you're just kind of like okay i already know that there's going to be a tragedy at prom and i know what's going to happen and now i'm sort of getting like the book isn't assuming i don't know that you know as you're reading that's that's what i was getting at if, if you can go into it Especially, I mean, if you've never seen the movie, it's even better. Just mm-hmm. go into it as with as, as um, just go into it not knowing anything about it. I think is probably the best way to go. And if you can't, I'm, I'm now I'm running myself in circles. The bottom line is, if you if you try to look at it from a 1974 perspective, you're reading it before the movie came out. Nobody knows who Stephen King is. Think of it that way, and I think it, it works really well structure wise. Yeah, but think of it this way: like the, the the thing I love about those those drop bombs, and, and like he does it like nonstop, and he's done it like in every. I think every book that he's that he's released is he has that that sort of thing because it is jarring when you say like, you know, at one point it's like, oh, uh, Carrie went with her the bar with her ill fated escort or something like that, and you're like, wait, wait a second, Tommy's gonna die? Like, you know, there's. Something about taking that detail and then applying that knowledge to everything that's going to happen to that character leading up to it. Because it's like, like, for example, like I was watching, I watched Green Room again last night and Anton Yelchin, you know, passed away uh, last year, tragically. And I had not seen the film since um, his death. Like I'd seen it, you know, a couple of times in theaters and then he had died like a few weeks after that. And I had not seen it since then, and now having known that knowledge he is dead, and then watching that film, there's something that does change that viewing for mm-hmm. me. Like I would watch it and go, "Oh my god!" Like this is so weird that, like, first off, spoiler. Well, I don't want to do any spoilers in the green room, yeah. but like yeah. just watching it and, and, and feeling, and you see his, and you go, "Oh my god!" There's so much potential with this star. It's so much young, or blah, blah, blah. and like his performance takes a, an elevated height. And I think that logic applies to the way that he writes these stories. Like, when you watch and you know that these things are going to happen in these characters, you start, like, latching onto them a little bit more. Like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is... This is this is awful. Like like in like in it when you know that like um was it Stan Uris like or yeah. you know one of the characters like happens in like like when you go back after that and you and you see those characters and you're like oh my gosh like this is so awful like you know now I know what I know where his fate is going to lead to yeah. and so you care about the characters more often and that's why I think he's so his characters are so iconic in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah no I, I agree and I think that to me I, I love the structure. 
I don't think he ever really does this again. No, I don't think so. Not to this we, extent. Was, no. we might be wrong, but I can't remember. Like I said, there's snippets of it in other books, but yeah, I don't think right. he relies yeah. on that completely. No, not throughout. There might be certain sections. But. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I, I, I mean, um, I, I, just, I, I do love that structure. I think what it does is it forces you to all of a sudden look at the story in a completely different way mm-hmm. when you find these little tidbits out about a character maybe not surviving and I mean it just totally changes your perception because then you start to care about that character way before you even should because <laughs> you yeah, know maybe yeah. something you're a little bit more invested I think that's really true because I think that um, I I don't know that I would trust or care about Tommy as much if I didn't know that this was going to end really badly for him he's just a hunk he's just he's, a hunk yeah he's just a hunk by, by also doing these documents and showing that there is some like he's building his world mm-hmm. And like when you watch, when you read this book, what is so amazing is that, you know, he's able to, to actually create like kind of a mini world. And like, granted, I, and we're going to talk about this later on, I, I don't think this is as connected to the, the, the King universe as much, is, yeah. but he's like, he creates like, you know, he references Lewiston. Like, you know, he talks about like Chamberlain being close to Lewis, Lewiston in Maine, which is their second largest city. And like, you know, that's, that gives it a little more grounding. Like you understand mm-hmm. that. And then you know, by connecting it to some commission, like, think about it, this is, like, you know, the 70s and, like, the late 60s, like, government was, like, a huge, you know, source, of, you know, it wasn't as, like, um, you know, we weren't as, like, um, uh, anti-government as we were uh, back then. So it's, it gives it a little more, like, grounded, fa- like, basis in fact of, like, at the time, if you're reading this, being like, oh, wow, so, like, the U.S. took notice of this small town that's going to happen. Like, it, the gravity of the situation is so much more, like, real and what what's interesting watching with this format is that the point of view shifts because like you know a lot of it could be from sue so like when you actually do understand what happens to sue like it's it's a it makes her more of a tragic character in a sense because then you see like everybody you see how other point of views reflected upon her and how that they don't believe her story and such and so i mean i I think it's kind of smart for especially for this story and it's something that adaptations of the the of this this book have never been able to nail all right now we're going to move on to our next section uh, a little thing we like to call zeros and villains i'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown welcome to the losers club (laughs) here we just like talk about characters um, who who we like, who we don't. So I, why don't we kind of go in a circle here and maybe touch on um, a character that uh, maybe, uh, you know, a character that really spoke to us and that we thought really popped on the page and really worked. And then um, also a character who maybe didn't work as much. Um, I'll start, and I think uh, the character that I that I find myself really drawing towards, and I think it, it, it might not even be because of how well the character is written, but more because I'm interested in how this archetype plays out in Stephen King is uh, Billy Nolan, mm-hmm. um, the bully, uh, played by John Travolta in the movie, and some no-name in the remake. And, um, and uh, he's the, he's the uh, uh, you know, the cool sort of greaser guy. Well, actually, he's really not that cool. He's kind of a burnout. He a yeah. yeah, he's like a hick, which is actually a really interesting dynamic that I feel like they really don't touch on in, um, in the remake. And they only a little bit touch on with Travolta. Like, he's kind of a, yeah, he's kind of just kind of, um, you know. He's a bad boy. He's a bad boy. And I, 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 but I love that archetype. I love sort of the bully, the sociopathic, um, you know, dick in Stephen King. I 
think he writes those characters well. Uh, he's got a lot of really iconic ones, like Henry Bowers from uh, It. Uh, what's who's the guy in the Christine? Who's basically this Billy? I mean, it's basically Billy Nolan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's basically yeah. Billy Nolan. I mean, yeah. Ace Merrill from uh, Oh, Ace Marvel Merrill is classic. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, just to cut in real quick. It's really interesting because I felt like when they describe Billy and Billy's car, mm-hmm. it really reminded me of Christine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that whole description. Does he drive a Chevy? Weird. Like a classic Chevy? It was very Plymouth strange. Lovers. Or is it, yeah. what is it? Plymouth? Wait, Plymouth, wait. It's a Plymouth. Christine's a Plymouth Fury. You're right. Sorry, I know nothing about cars. It was just more of the way that yeah. he described it in the book. I was like, this is really weird. But yeah, I think what Bill, what work, really works with Billy for me is um, sort of the casual cruelty. Um, I think there's a lot of cruelty that manifests in a lot of different ways. In Carrie, um, we have the mother who her cruelty is sort of born out of, um, you know, a, a sort of warped devotion to God, um, a, a misplaced idea of what faith is, and um, and also just a lot of um, insecurity and anger about how her own life has turned out and blaming Carrie for that. And then Chris's uh, cruelty, I think, is just born out of... Um, you know, uh, privilege and uh, class and, um, you know, and just, uh, uh, you know, kind of the environment that she grew up in. Obviously, we meet Chris's father and he's a dickbag, too. So you get a good sense of the kind of home that she grew up in. Whereas Billy is 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 interesting. He's, he's a very king character in that he's sort of cruel for cruelty's sake, you know. He enjoys killing pigs. He, uh, you know, and he... He likes, I think he likes, you know, the idea of corrupting Chris, this sort of like, you know, sweet popular girl. Well, she's not really sweet, but in, you know, in his mind. I think a good argument could be made, though, that in a way she's manipulating him just as much as he's manipulating her. Yeah, and I think, but I think also it's because his cruelty is so casual and so... Um, When he hits her very, like, and they both end up hitting each other, but that that always struck me with him how he was... of, Of course there are high school relationships that are abusive, but the way... The way he just, like, casually will, like, smack her or punch her or whatever seems to be very... Not, not strange isn't the right word, because, like I said, that ha- certainly happens in real life with people that age. But um, you don't see that depicted in high school relationships quite as much in yeah. genre fiction or b- books in general. Yeah, I, but, I mean, King's very metaphorical, obviously. And there's that <laughs> yeah. whole thing where, like, uh, Chris is wearing the, the, the new sweater that, like, costs, like, almost $30 and or something like that. Bra, right? like and she's well, of course, yeah. This is <laughs> yeah, a Stephen King book. But um, uh, I but there there's a part where she's, like, getting grease all over it, but she, like, likes it. And mm-hmm. it's such a metaphor for the relationship. It's just, like, this guy is, like, such a... He's, like, scumming up her, she likes like... slumming it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, like... But, I mean, to, to your point, like... He's kind of he's really resourceful and like I I mean a lot of it's like maybe King because he kind of almost gets like very Vince Gilligan in the way he's so detail yeah. driven like the whole setup for the 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 actual like bucket with the pig's blood is so like I felt like I was watching a Breaking Bad episode they have to like wait for it to thaw right the they have to wait for the thaw and then they talk about how he's setting it all up and like there's a great scene where like Billy's just alone in the the um the gymnasium. Uh, setting it all up and like the jingling of his like uh, of the tool belt is yeah. like that going in there and, 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 and but he's so specific and scientific about it that you go like all right well this guy's the kid's resourceful like yeah. I mean right you know and along those lines I I love that you bring that up because he clearly has talent and he's putting it towards humiliating yeah, some girl cool. he doesn't even know yeah and that to me is it's that that points to that casual cruelty that you know sort of. I don't know if it's sociopathy or psychopathy, but uh, there's something unhinged about him deep down, and I think that's the case with a lot of Stephen King's bullies, where their cruelty really knows no bounds. In a lot of stories, 
uh, bullies are usually revealed to be vulnerable and they're only lashing out because, you know, they have a hard home life or they're misunderstood. Stephen King's bullies aren't like that. They're, they're genuine, genuinely evil for the most part. I mean, especially Henry Bowers, but, but I think Billy is too. And, um, I find that a very interesting point of King, but I think the character that I identify with less, um, is, is, uh, I think she's written a little, I think it, it's a little necessary for the character, but uh, uh, Carrie's mother, I think, is, um, you know, very much sort of a stereotype of what you think uh, frantic, shrill, um, you know, uh, fundamentalist uh, would be. I think that... Um, I think that she's, I don't think she's like a poor character, but I think at times he really overdoes it with her religious ranting. Yeah, it's, I I think the problem is that we're used to seeing like, you know, um, Piper Laurie does such a good job in making Mm -hmm. the, which is funny because she criticized the screenplay. um, Really? Initially, she thought, well, she thought it was a black comedy or she was arguing, she was arguing it was a black comedy. But she gives a lot of nuance to a role that in the book is is largely a monster. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, look, look at this, like, I I underline this specifically because it's so, it's so vivid. Like, this is, this is how King describes uh, Margaret White. Mama was a very big woman and she always wore a hat. Lately, her legs had begun to swell, and her feet always seemed on the point of overflowing her shoes. She wore a black cloth coat with a black fur collar. Her eyes were blue and magnified behind rimless bifocals. She always carried a large black satchel purse, and in it was her change purse, her billfold, both black, a large King James Bible, also black, and with her name stamped on the front in the gold, and a stack of tracks secured with a rubber band. The tracks were usually orange and smearily printed. I mean, she's a monster. She, yeah. she, he describes her as a monster, yeah. and that's pretty much yeah. all you really get from her in this book. Like, Well, this is the beginning of King's overbearing mothers. Yeah. Because you've got this, and in the next novel you're going to have another Susan. overbearing mother, Susan's mother, uh, Wendy's mother, and yep. The Shining. It goes on and on. You can go back, you can go into It. Which um, is funny, though, because Larry's mother in the stand. He has I a mean, really good relationship with his own mother. Which is life. a whole interesting point about a short story in Night Shift we will be talking about. Which, yeah. which is actually kind of sad about his mother, is that she died before he even published Carrie. Never knew anything that her son... Oh, like, wow. That's, that's unfortunate. I didn't, I didn't know that until And she was so night. supportive of him, from yes. what I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know a lot of that's so depressing. So yeah, I'd say those were my two uh, characters. Mike, like, do, do you agree that maybe uh, Carrie's mother is is one of the weaker characters? I absolutely, yeah, I agree. And then who would you say is uh, your the character that really stands out for you? You know, I, I really love Tommy Ross in this, yeah, yeah. And, and I and again, it's so hard to separate the film, you know, That's from what I was this because say, I love yeah, William Cat. William Cat is just perfect. so good in that role, and 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 I think a lot of it does derive from this book though, because he mm-hmm. is really. He is really great. And what's interesting is that there's a section in the book where, like, Carrie actually admits, and this is, like, again, you can't get this in a movie and you can't get, like, her own, like, inner uh, monologues, but I get the sense that, like, even in the book that Tommy does come around to her a little bit, and I think oh, I William Cat does pick up on that yeah, in, the, in, the, in the movie, but what's interesting is that Carrie knows that, like, this is what she says. This is her own dialogue. It's like, Tommy Ross didn't love her. She knew that. This was some strange kind of atonement, and she could understand that and respond to it. She had lain cheek and jowl with the concept of penance since she had been old enough to reason. So it's kind of interesting that, like, it's a weird, like, subtle reverse that, like, Tommy might be coming around to to carry where she realized this is just something that she has earned, in a way. That this is, like, she acknowledges the penance because she's very religious. So she sees it as, like, this is, like, their sense of forgiveness. And for me, like, 
seeing that weird relationship, like, I just became so, like, I felt like almost Tommy was actually the one that's the, that you're really supposed to sympathize with more well, than anyone was, in the whole book. Sorry, and that was my question for you, is that do you think, because it, it's, it's a pretty vague uh, in the movie, but in the book, do you think that, what were Tommy's intentions, do you think? Do you think that he started to kind of see her in a, a light that was maybe not falling for her, but seeing something special there, or was yeah. it always just, you know, to kind of be nice? Well, to just chime in here, I, I th- I've got written down that I think that of everybody in the book, I think Tommy is the most innocent. Absolutely. Yes. Because obviously Carrie, you know, kills people. <laughs> and, but snooze and... Snooze. But, <laughs> snooze. No, I really like... That was not, that was not a slip. Um, but even Sue's intentions are very much like I, I, guilt. They're based yes. on guilt. Yes. They're not just based on I'm a nice person. And she is I mean, mean to Carrie she, in the beginning. She is mean to... Yeah, it's, again, it's all about like making things up to, to Carrie. But I've got Tommy as... I mean, she he makes... he. I think he calls Carrie some names earlier on in the book, but once that's out of the way, he is for me the most innocent character of, of them all. So, and he is doing kind of. It's funny because the arrangement that Sue has set up was always so different to me. You know what I mean? Like even thinking back in high school, and this is something that King gets at this idea of there being kind of like a hierarchy to popular people. That you know there are the Chris Hargensons who are are just cruel. Yeah. You know, even if maybe it comes from a. Uh, how she was raised or whatever and her being abused possibly at her house she's still a cruel person and I certainly knew girls and guys like that in high school and then you have people like Tommy Ross who they're popular but they they're good folks though you know what I mean yeah, and like they're, they're good natured they're just good natured and like maybe he does come with some privilege and whatever else but like um so I was just thinking back on that I was trying to think at my high school okay is there with the girls who get picked on my high school, is there one of them who would feel guilty to the point where she would ask her boyfriend to take this girl to prom? And, like, I don't know. I, I don't think so. That just seems like mm-hmm. such a unique thing. And the fact that Tommy Ross was willing to go along with that, I, I think, and, and in a way that was totally sincere and in a way where he was nice to carry, I think does speak volumes uh, about him as a character. Yeah, no, and I think that with Tommy being the most innocent, I think it's also a really interesting relationship because my the character I've what's the most interested in reading the book was actually Carrie, who I think is, is actually kind of a bad person. Yeah. And not, really? and, and I think that a, she, it's not her fault necessarily. I think a lot of awful things happen to her, obviously, and she's treated terribly and her mother treats her awfully, but there's a lot of, you know, sequences in the, in, in the book where she is talking and we're hearing her inner monologue mm-hmm. and she is exercising her, you know, kind of like the evil in her. And she recognizes that it's evil, but she's still, you know, uh, uh, hurts the kid on the bike, you know, or, uh, yeah. you know, she does these things. And, um, you know, I, I, I was going to, I wanted to bring this up. I wanted to see if, what you guys thought also about, you know, the, the kind of the end of the book. I mean, where she actually starts doing these things in at the prom. Is she cognizant of it? Because there's some versions of the uh, of it where she's not, and there's some versions where she is. And I, I totally picked up on that, and like, I, and I, I absolutely agree. And it's 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 really towards the end that you really start to realize that there's almost a delight in this, and like it's. And I don't know if it's just. And again, it's one of the problems that I, it's one of the not a problem per se, but just one of the things that I'm trying to wrestle currently while rereading The Shining. When you're going in through Jack's monologue, and you're trying to understand like what, where does he particularly lean as a character? Because you yeah. know as the narrator, but you don't know really where he does. And with her, there's a section at the end, and it's it's very towards the back, like where she's walking around and there's she's electrocuting somebody, and it's like she's like you know by Christ, then let them all look funny, you know, like she's like having fun watching this guy, like and it's like terrifying reading about this. Yeah. This guy's like like limping around and moving around, like being like electrocuted. He's like. 
His feet shuffled in the water. His his hair stood up in spikes, and his mouth jerked open like the mouth of a fish. He looked funny. She began to laugh. I I, I have her kind of like the gray zone. Yeah. I, I don't think she. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting character, kind of like Jack Torrance. You know, it's these are these tortured people for various reasons. For Carrie, obviously, we talked about her repression, and if her mother was such an overbearing religious you know, zealot or wannabe zealot, um, would she have turned out this way? And the yeah. answer is probably no. Yeah. And yeah. so a lot, but then a lot of that also goes back to you can't blame everything on the abuser. Right. No, that's true. What is justified? But, but that's something that makes this character so unique and memorable too. Though she's not an out and out crazy villain. She's just she's Carrie. Yeah. And, it's an and, and it's funny too because in the movie, um, and we'll talk about this more when we get to adaptations. But the movie, I think, does go more towards the idea that she is not quite aware of what she's doing. You know, like you don't really see her being. Um, you don't see her enjoying any of it in the movie. She's kind of spaced out while she's doing it. So, but we're just talking about the book. It's funny because I, I, when at first when you said, "Oh, I think Carrie is somewhat of a bad person," I, I, in my head I was like, "No, no, that she was like picked on and whatever else." But it goes back to the thing: like if if someone shoots up a school because they got picked on, do we think they're a good person? Usually not. And so it's interesting because we just know we're with Carrie for so long and we know so much of her backstory. And the jury's out for me, I guess. Like, I mean, I think it's like Justin said. I think it's hard to for me anyway to go into evil versus not evil but it's funny that you say that because i i i hadn't really looked at her smiling and enjoying this as as evidence of that but i'm just relating it to like school shoot and i mean just school shootings be people who act out and harm other people because they've been harmed is that justified you know i like carrie <laughs> I think I want to. I want to make it clear, though. I mean, she's absolutely a victim. Max a bully. No. She, <laughs> yeah. Mac, you know. Mac was always called I, Billy Nolan. I, 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 yeah, I was gonna say my other favorite character is Billy. No, but seriously, though, I mean, I, I do love her in the book. I think that they go into her in such great detail, whereas that line is blurred for me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like it's, she's just plain Jane, a uh, guy, or she's plain Jane being the victim the whole time. Like, no, like it's very layered and it's very gray. There are sequences in the book where she's exercising her powers and and, 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 and with the intention to hurt. Mm-hmm. But then there are, are scenes where something is happening to her and it just happens. She's trying to figure that out. And obviously, this is also a parallel with what we were talking about with, you know, A, sexual awakening and B, just, you know, growing up, being a teenager, being unruly, you know, wanting to fit in and then also wanting to, you know, be independent and, you know, not be part of your, your parents' plan. Um, so I, I, I think I, that's why she was the most interesting character to me. Um, I, I would label her more as a villain because of what Mike was talking about. But, um, I, I think that I also connected with her the most, which is interesting to me because I don't think that I ever really, you know, went through any of that in high school. Well, there's that one shower. So. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> um, Dan, Justin, are there any characters uh, that we've touched on that maybe you have a different take on or that we haven't touched on at all? Or No, I mean, I, I was going to also say Tommy Ross, and I think we, we covered that pretty well. Um, I I don't, with with Carrie White's mom, I actually like her a lot as a character. Uh, it's that weird thing of, you know, I think there are people who are like that. Yeah. As far as, I, I totally get what you guys are saying about the religious fanatic being somewhat of an archetype and just making her so much of a monster. But she does have that bit at the end of the book, which I think adds a little bit more depth to her, about um, how with Carrie's dad, it was kind of like they couldn't control themselves. Like, they didn't want to have sex, but they did. And then, do they... Am I remembering this wrong? Does she also hint that, like, 
he, she possibly got raped. Yeah, I, I, right? Yeah. yeah. She does. And because it was like the first, was it, am I, is it that the first time they, they had sex? His breath and everything else. Uh, she was raped, but she enjoyed it. That's right. And exactly. she hates herself for that. And so that to me adds a little bit more dimension to her. I mean, on top of the fact that I, I don't know, man, I've met religious people and I, not to tie everything back to this election or whatever else, but I've certainly heard people talk like that and, mm-hmm. and be, use it for awful, awful means. So yeah. to me, for me, I, I, I guess I don't mind the, uh, her being somewhat of an archetype or maybe even a stereotype. And also I think she does get a little bit more depth later on. She's still awful. Like she's a terrible sure. person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mac, what are you going right. to say? No, I was just going to agree with Randall that she, she is, she does describe it very vividly in the book about how she was taken against her will, but she, expressly says that she loved it she started to enjoy it and then she but because it was this sin and she knew it was wrong but you know it's very it's very much written in there like that um we're not just throwing that out there that she just she enjoyed being raped yeah Yeah. Yeah, please god um uh something something that i really enjoy this is once again something you can only get from the inner workings of a novel from inner monologues is norma's description of what happened with the uh her, with her classmates after the blood falls on Carrie. And it's not as cut and dry as these are evil kids laughing. It, it, it's written as this. Norma says, um, we couldn't help it. It was one of those things where you laugh or go crazy. Mm. Carrie had been the butt of every joke for so long, and we all felt that we were part of something special that night. It was as if we were watching a person rejoin the human race. And I, for one, thanked the Lord for it. And that happened, that horror. And so there was nothing else to do. It was either laugh or cry. And who could bring himself to mm. cry over Carrie after all these years? And it's true. It's, it's it, point, it, it, in addition yeah. to this whole element of groupthink, like once somebody starts to, to crack up, what do you follow the lead? What do you do? And I think that was an interesting way of looking at it. Of course, you know, Norma also, uh, she, she seems like a pretty it's, awful person Norma's, in the book, too. That's yeah, a great pretty, passage. I, yeah, I yeah. did. I actually read it too, too. And I thought that was, and I, and I put it on next to it, was like, weird logic. And yeah. I, But your, the, your examination, it, it does make sense. Like, yeah. you know. Wait, so, sorry, I know we, we want to get, we, want, we have other stuff to talk about, but really quick. Because that passage, that's the first time that's really like yeah. hitting me. Is what Norma's saying that when she um, gets crowned prom queen at first, they're actually all into it. Like, oh my gosh, it's it's like this metamorphosis we're watching. and, we're, and But then yeah. then it gets taken away so quick yeah. and it gets shattered that it almost induces like a lunacy in them. That's, re- that, that's really laugh, interesting. Yeah. And, they, and, they, and, they, and, they, and the teacher does laugh also. Yeah. 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 It's just this weird moment that happens huh. and nobody could possibly expect it to happen, yet... Of course this is going to happen. Yeah. This is who Carrie is. This is her yeah. destiny. Maybe Norma's my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Norma's my favorite character. One yeah. of the things I struggle with um, in the book is the fact that clearly, like Sue especially, um, uh, speaks in a way where it's like she's been out of high school for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And she has a certain like awareness of high school culture that feels like, you know, wise. Uh, and that's clearly Stephen King. Making her sort of his his mouthpiece to a degree, and but I think that the perfect fusion of of finding logic in high school, but then having the wherewithal to articulate it, like high school logic, teenage logic, and the ability to articulate it, is that Norma passage yeah. because that is that sort of reaction is something that I think, like you said, weird logic. And I think I, I, I felt that way when I first read it too. But then you think about it though, and it's like, it makes so much sense, yeah. but you can only really articulate it after the fact. Yeah. Like when yeah. they say, we can't bring ourselves to like cry for Carrie, that's true. You made fun of someone her whole life. You can't just immediately change your brain and be like, we're going to cry for this person. Like that is such a smart 
like that is such good writing to be able to articulate why people were laughing but it wasn't cruel but you know and you can say that it was a justification or logic but i think that there's a lot of truth which you can't really get in the um you can't you can only get so much of that as much as i love the movie and the movie certainly the original movie certainly does um play around a lot with how Carrie is perceiving how people are acting toward and how yeah, they actually are. Exactly. Unless you yeah, have a, like a, a voiceover throughout. You just cannot yeah, quite that's a, that, exactly that's such the a, intent uh, of the writer. That's such a great passage, though. Thanks for sharing that. I, one thing I do want to, before we close on the, the Zeros and Villains, like I, I think we got to give some credit to, to um, Mr. Grail. Like, that scene, <laughs> that scene where he goes against Chris's dad is yeah. like one of my favorites, and they actually do include that in the in the remake. Except they give it to um, uh, Mr. Jardin, who I, th- I think has a different teacher in, or d- teacher name in the in mm-hmm. the movie, but in the remake, really? but I think they they don't use Desjardins again because I don't think she's named. I don't think her name's Mrs. Desjardins in seventy uh, six either. Yeah, though. But either way, like that scene where he like battles with. Uh, with with Chris's dad, it was probably one of my most, my most enjoyable moments in like in the book, yeah. just because I, I I come from like a family of like teachers and stuff too. So and like and my my aunt was a principal, and she would come on and tell me all these stories about these like bastard parents, like, just like the <laughs> worst people in the world. And the way that like you finally see the principal just like being like stone cold, just like no fuck you, like you know. <laughs> well, I like that also though because also in the book it gives you a lot more sympathy uh, for, you know towards what happens to him. Yeah. Sympathy towards what happens to him, yeah. and in the movie he's just this guy who doesn't you can't remember her name. No. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. And that happens in the book too, but you get a little, yeah. little more of a human you know humanitarian. Let's move on to what we like to call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there. Ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. This is where we like to talk about uh, the creepiest moments, um, the iconic deaths, things that really stick with us. Um, for me, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, especially near the end, um, there's a lot of. Uh, violence. There's a lot of insanity, um, but the the one the most visceral moment of horror for me is uh, literally the bucket hitting Tommy's yes. head. Yes. There's something so too. visceral about that and about the violence of the image um, of you know just this like you know sharp cold bucket striking somebody in the head. And I think especially with um, thinking of uh, uh, the you know the '70s movie, um, there's something really visceral to me about William Cat's hair. Yeah, um, like his, well, yeah, just like that, that big, bright blonde hair, like, that like, throw. that's how I, and then, you know, I, when I read the book, I had the edition, the movie edition, and there were photos of him in it, and I, I remember that's how I always envisioned it when I read the book. Um, De Palma captures that moment to perfection, because, like, the, King actually writes that scene mm-hmm. exactly how it is, where everything's quiet, where all you could hear is the metal, which is, is great, like, it, yeah. I agree, yeah, that, that scene is just, like, uh, so bad. I my my favorite scene in the book and like again it's like when we get to the the next books and the next books I really love sense of place mm-hmm. for him like I think like King is is one of my favorite writers like one of the reasons why I love him so much is that he gets you to he he's great at showing scope and he's great at getting you to that location and my favorite scene and it's not in the the movie is where Sue's alone in her house and she knows that something's wrong. She's first off starts to worry that Carrie's gonna like Tommy's gonna fall in love with Carrie. Um, so she starts getting ready to go. Um, and what way they gloss over in the movie is in all the movies actually, is that she's alone in the ha- like in the house when everything starts when the shit goes down. And she looks out, she hears the whistle. Like there's a part where it's like 
The town hall whistle went off every day at 12 noon, and that was all, except to call the volunteer fire department during grass fire season in August and September. It was strictly for major disasters, and its sound was dreamy and terrifying in the empty house. She went to the window, but slowly. The shrieking of the whistle rose and fell, rose and fell. Somewhere, horns were beginning to blat, as if for a wedding. She could see her reflection in the darkened glass, lips parted, eyes wide, and then the condensation of her breath obscured it. And, and, and it goes into this whole thing of her being alone in this house and she hears the whistle and there's a part where it talks about um, the fire like uh, oh yeah here it is um, she's looking out the window and she can see the, the school in the distance which is interesting it's very like I like think of like Washington Irving how like he this, painted like, Sleepy Hollow or like something like that kind of and you can yeah. see this whole like town from the window well, and she's in like, like the, the Marston in the Marston house, yeah. house exactly and he's, he does this stuff so well and like um and he says, like, and far below to the left where the high school parking lot was, the ring of sodium arc lamps made it a sure landmark. Although the school building itself was visible, invisible in the dark, a spark glowed as if God had struck a flint and steel. And just that moment of being alone, it, I mean, again, it's not just, you know, do the whole hashtag never forget. But it did make me remember, <laughs> like, that night of, like, you know, just because 9-11 is the biggest tragedy that we've had, like, yeah, for our, so, in our generation, yeah. other than the current election that's out, or the, the <laughs> president-elect. Um, but... That moment of just being in the house alone, like I remember when that, like that night, of an island, and just being and just watching this stuff going down in like a, a dark room and in a, a thing, and, and this this all this madness happening. But I was safe and comfortable in my own house, and that eeriness of seeing disaster happen, some awful, the worst hell on earth happening from afar, and hearing it and being close enough to just like be able to experience like. That that for me was like that that scared the hell out of me in this book. Like I think you know. uh, the scariest thing to me, uh, some of the creepiest moments in the book, um, had nothing to do with the prom, and mm-hmm. which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it was it was absolutely her mother, uh, and and I had a I have a great relationship with my with my parents. But I will say, um, any time that she was having a conversation with her mother, I was unnerved. Uh, he writes that so well, you know, it, it's just so unnerving to see someone in this position of power. You know, when you're a kid, your parents are God to some extent, you know, they are the end all be all. And just some of the stuff that she kind of puts her through. Uh, I mean, even just that, that scene at the dinner table when they're when they're eating uh, the pie and yeah, and she's well, telling her, you know, she's forcing her to eat Yeah, she's it, forcing yeah. her to eat the pie because she, she's like, well, you know, maybe if you eat that pie, maybe you will get pimples and et cetera, you know, and, and you know, it, it'll, it'll make you less vain. And, and just like all these terrible things that she says to her and it's just kind of horrifying. And, and it's funny because I, I feel like just the overall sense of religion and how it's approached in this book reminds me very much of like how I felt when I saw like The Exorcist or something. Now, I'm not an extremely religious person by any means, but I do think that there's something else out there. And to tap into these things where you're like okay well yes it's telekinesis but is there something more to it here you know on 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 either miss white's end or carrie's end that taps into something a little bit more otherworldly in terms of religion um you know it's it's a scary line to to start thinking about uh just and and i i don't know I, i just felt like those are the most creepy moments for me were the scenes where you know she's being kind of tortured by her mother um i I would perhaps agree with Randall about the bucket hitting Tommy definitely being the most disturbing and creepiest moment, um, just because it's just, like, such a mundane thing. If I was going to go outside that, though, um, 
yeah, this ties back to what we're talking about with Carrie and her mom. I don't know why this moment always stuck with me, but it's, it's pretty early on when um, it's one of the scenes of her mom abusing her. And she shoves her to the floor, and it talks specifically about Carrie's nose scraping on the floorboards mm. and, like, oh, like yeah. scraping the skin off her nose, which it definitely isn't the worst thing that happens to Carrie in the novel, but I think it goes back to what you're saying about that feeling like such an everyday thing. And I, I'm, I have great parents also and have not been shoved to the floor by them but but still you can there's just something so simple about it and maybe it's because king tends to operate in the supernatural that those sorts of things stand out it's like that moment in, it's i think it's only in the pet cemetery movie where lewis creed hits his head yeah. on the nightstand it's just such a oh when he gets out oh he wakes up out of bed oh, which i still yeah. wonder if that was a flub or if that was actually intended yeah that was a good you know it looks such like a, it looks like a flub well, if we get mary lambert on the podcast hey, you never know but um yeah so I, th- I think that moment of the, that specific moment of her nose scraping the floorboard just has always sat with me in a uh, weird way what about you justin um well pr- I'll, I'll go last appropriately enough it's the last narrative moment, at least, with, um, mm-hmm. with, with Sue. And I think King often and justifiably gets criticized for his uh, la- the latter half of his books mm-hmm. or the ending of his books. He can't quite nail the ending sometimes. He gets lost in the journey. But let me just read the last passage here, and we can talk about this. Um, uh, Sue, she slowed, halted, and became aware that something had begun to happen. She stood in the middle of the great and misty field waiting for realization. Her rapid breathing slowed, slowed, caught suddenly as if on a thorn and suddenly vented itself in one howling, cheated scream. And she felt the slow course of dark minstrel blood down her thighs. That that ending, because there's so much going on there. You've got, you now know that she's not pregnant with Tommy's baby. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of Tommy's bloodline. Oh, yeah. Is it just a a natural event, but it's a callback to the opening? With Carrie having period. Or is it something supernatural with Carrie beyond the grave, like as a reminder, like, you know, never forget this happened. There's so much going on there in that last sentence because we're so used to the the movie ending, that classic ending of the movie with the, yeah. the blood coming out, with the hand coming out of the grave, Which and I, I felt like with oh, I'd love the ending. That's <laughs> yeah. one of the greatest jump scares of all. No. Anyway, we'll get into that. <laughs> but the, with the book for it to end like that, it's just like you think, how is this book going to end? How is this book going to end? And then that ending just really stuck right. with me in terms of all the the loaded questions that come. Well, yeah, no, I, I I I love that end. Like, here's the thing: the reason I, I love the ending for the movie until I reread that part with that what you're talking yeah. about because. I also think that she's giving a glimpse to uh, to uh, to Sue about what death is going to lead. Like it's going to be nothing. It's going to be absolute like dark black. You have the light, and then it's just nothing and just uh, like absolute uh, a vacuum. Yeah. And then she, I think there's a, I can't, I gotta have to look back. But I think there's a part where Sue like now has to live her life knowing that uh, where that's going to lead to. And I thought, oh my fucking god, what a cruel. That is such a cruel punishment. It's such a loaded like, ending. It's it's so finite. It's so yeah. fi- you know finite and, and it's definitive, but it's so. And you'd never be able to capture it on film. Exactly. You'd never be able you to can. capture that on film no. in, in, unless you got to like some weird ass two thousand one esque site set ending where <laughs> yeah. you see her just like like a wow. like a, like an interstellar thing where she's floating in blackness and like Imagine you know. And, and I'm sitting here and I see darkness, but no, <laughs> but like that, that and that honestly like yeah, reading that was just like oh man, that is so much more effective than the jump scare. But I mean, Grant, again, I don't hate the jump. It's yeah. after reading that. No, yeah. yeah, and I was just gonna say with that, um, how you were saying like you know, is this kind of this thing where she's going to be haunted by this forever um as that and that's like the reminder almost of it you know Mm -hmm. anytime you know she has her period which is also kind of um sad and scary because 
you know, with Miss White talking about how, you know, with the, the, the holy origins of the period is kind of like a, a, a punishment or a reminder of, you know, Eve's, you know, original sin. And her original sin is what happened. Right. Yeah. Oh, and then, you know, one can also look at it like, you know, maybe there's been a, you know, TK awakening and Sue, you know. <laughs> I mean, you never and know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Carrie, too. Coming up. Um, <laughs> yeah. After the break. Yeah. Now we'd like to have a little fun on the podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, a little section we like to call Pound Cake, which is a reference to 112263's che- cheeky way of talking about sex. After all you've been taught, everyone in bed, mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. The thing is, as much as we love Stephen King, we love to, we, we all kind of derive a great deal of enjoyment with the way that he talks about sex. And I think we all sort of wondered, oh, well, he's like that in his later books, you know, but was he like that in his early books too? And the definitive answer is yes. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So we like to just kind of break down some of the funnier, um, you know, sexual uh, language that he likes to use. Um, and I guess I'll kick it off with one uh, that uh, it's a phrase that he likes to use a lot for small breasts <laughs> And it's a phrase um, uh, called nubs, um, and he—he, he, I think I first noticed it in um, when I was listening to David Morse uh, narrate revival on Star audiobook, of Star of Hearts and Atlantis, and the Green Mile, and, the Green Mile. With and uh, he was—he was describing a preteen girl's sweater nubs. And it was uh, sweater nubbins or, or sweater nubbins, oh, and it was such an unfortunate phrase. And then when I was reading uh, Carrie, uh, there was the phrase token nubs. So he really <laughs> did it. like that was from the beginning. He's been using from that term. Beginning. Oh boy! Well, yeah. Maybe it was a deliberate callback. Hey, remember Carrie when I mentioned <laughs> what, sweater? Nubs? What if he's like he's like oh yeah you know uh, Carrie doesn't have a lot of like dark tower connections, so I had to yeah, <laughs> yeah connect it. It's all connected. That. Yeah, another thing. Yeah, no, I was just gonna yeah. say like uh, the, the first time I read that, I started laughing because I knew that. That, that was going to be a section in our book. Uh, I mean, our, our podcast. I just felt like, you know, there, there are there's tons of references like that. And the thing that, to me, though, is that they are all very dated references. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they might not be, like, to us, uh, you know, I, I don't refer to the, you know, anything as nubbins. Uh, uh, speak for yourself. However, you know, I, I, I think we did some research, though. I think a lot of these things might have been, like, you know, a lot of slang that was maybe used in the, you know, sure. the 50s, 70s, but, you know, like, like, and, the 70s yeah. and the 60s. Uh, you know, when he was growing up. So, um, sure. Well, does anybody have any references written down? Oh, I mean, c- I have, to Chris Hardigan, to Chris's, I, um, like, her upper thighs or whatever oh, it is. He loves, loves Chris. I've taken it upon myself oh, yes. uh, in every one of his books uh, to underline as much sexual <laughs> tension with an S at the top of my pages. Carrie has so far had has the most he really? is to quote elaine bennis he's obsessed with breasts <laughs> like it's very like, true every character i think almost every woman that is introduced uh the size or yes or uh movement or whatever of her breasts is discussed oh, okay. deeply oh, some like, oh yeah yeah well here's her her silver whistle dangled between her small breasts <laughs> And if her shirts, sh- shorts weren't, were the ones that she had been wearing on a Friday, no trace of Carrie's bloody handprint remained. It's just like, what do we give a shit if like the whistle <laughs> dangled between her breasts? It's so ridiculous. Like Sue went over and slid carefully into the vacant side of Chris's booth. She was looking exceptionally pretty. Her black hair held by a shamrock green band and That's tight funny. basque blouse that accentuated her firm, upthrust breasts. 
Upthrust. Uh, upthrust press. His t-shirt. Oh, then, but he gets some. He gets some hunks in there, like you know. Um, <laughs> he, his t-shirt. He, describing uh, Billy. His t-shirt had pulled out of his jeans, and the flesh of his back was smooth, tanned, alive with muscles. <laughs> not really. <laughs> not really that much. How do you? Okay, we're just seeing the small of his back. Yeah. How many fucking muscles do you have at this point? Well, you're just reaching up. Reach <laughs> like, I'm just picturing, like, the thing, like, the effects of all the rippling, like... Well, no, I think, like, the devil's advocate where, like, the paintings start to come alive at the end of, like, moving around. Well, to be fair, one of my favorite um, uh, uh, Facebook cover photos was a photo of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for Vanity Fair laying down, and you could see you could see the um, the muscles as he's describing with Billy here. Um, another one is uh, when she's... He loves describing Chris, like, Oh my God, oh, Chris in his head. He's like, she swung her leg, her own legs over the edge of the bed and slid into gossamer panties. Gossamer? <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that a Smashing Pumpkin song? Gossamer, gossamer. is one. Yeah, it's a <laughs> ladder. He, he preceded the 20 minute Smashing Pumpkins jam that was in during the. Um, uh, their tour in the 2007. Um, there, there, there are a few other ones. We don't have to go in every one of them. But they're, they're mind you, there are non-stop they're they're fun yeah. to pick out in this basically book. stay tuned uh there's more we there's <laughs> one like a sore nub there, <laughs> there's one in uh salem's lot i wish i could talk about now oh, but yeah. we're gonna now hold off but on he, that. He even yeah. even when he car is driving i, I didn't I, I remember looking over it last night. he's like says like breasted over the mountain like you know like <laughs> over a million times it's like who, who said, said this? you know yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's very funny it's, it's fun funny. it's good it's good oh, for yeah. kids he also talks about you know uh, carries pimply ass. Oh yeah, yeah. Then, oh yeah. And then he talks about ass zits in Salem's Lot yep. too. Yes. In both books, there are ass zits, which I is and our favorite. Our, he talks about what happens out of the ass, uh, which is oh, Stephen. If you're listening, we Please. want to know what is the obsession with what, ass what, pimples. Are we are we going to include? Uh, this isn't as much in Carrie's later books, but are we gonna include the fart talk under pound cake? I feel like we oh, should, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. in Under the Dome. There, there's a lot oh, of um the farts there's, under the dome there's a lot of people getting beat up and then as a result <laughs> farting or shitting their pants. Like <laughs> in Sam's lots of books. Sam's lot Sam's lot is the creme de la creme of that. <laughs> the creme de la crap. It has <laughs> gotten so prevalent that when I was rewatching Salem's Lot, and we can talk about this in the, in the next podcast, but there's the when Fred Ward in the in the in the the show like is caught oh, with yeah. the shotgun. I was like, I was Fred like, Willard. Fred Willard, not Fred, Fred Ward. Ward yeah, Fred, Fred Fred Ward from Tremors. <laughs> no, Fred Willard. Um, yeah, uh, forgot he was in Road Trip. Um, but yeah, Fred Willard like is wearing like red boxers, and I was like wondering, I was like, oh, I wonder if uh, Toby Hooper made him shit his pants. No, <laughs> didn't. Um, even though he, they combined his character. But anyway, we don't um, have to talk too much about Pancake, I guess. But so. Uh, I think we'll wrap up our discussion of the book. Uh, stay tuned for, um, you know, we're, we have more to say on the various adaptations. But I think we all just want to kind of offer our overall thoughts on the book, our overall review. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. I, I think that, for me, Carrie is a very good book and especially a really impressive debut. And I think it's sort of an interesting uh, debut for King in that it really didn't telegraph um, 
you know, the diversity and where his career was going to go. I mean, Carrie, we, we talk about how he can, he builds the world of it, but it's still, uh, King went on to write such epics, you know, these books that had huge ensembles and, um, you know, that traversed, um, so much land, so many themes, so many different things. But Carrie is a relatively small story in terms of scope and, um, character as well. And so, you know, and I guess that makes sense for, you know, a first novel, but it is, it is sort of an interesting, um, you know, first entry into King and it's not one you know if I were if somebody asked me what Stephen King book should I read to get into King I probably wouldn't say Carrie I don't think that it's probably a great you know intro necessarily but um but I think overall for me uh I'm very struck by um you know I think Carrie uh, succeeds on a thematic uh, bent more than necessarily a character one, um, which is a little different from some of his later books. But, you know, it is very effective emotionally. And uh, um, and I think that thematically it really says a lot of fascinating things about uh, maturity, youth, um, uh, popularity, and also just, you know... Uh, the state of adolescence and high school and things of that nature. Yeah, so I was going to say that uh, for me, I feel like a little bit the opposite. I think that this is a great introductory book into Stephen King mm-hmm. because I feel like all of our first experience with King was when we were children or, mm-hmm. or not children, but you know, much younger. And I think that just having that, the, the prom set up, the high school set up uh, is perfect for that. And mm. I, I mean, it, it does say so many things about growing up and about, you know, I mean, I guess you could say, you should start with it as well but uh but no but i think it really hits it hits all that stuff so well and um even all the uh the telekinesis portions of the book um kind of thrust you into okay we're not going to just treat you like you know you're just some high school kid reading this book here's some really heavy stuff you know i I think it's all over the board but it's done really well it's constructed really smoothly and um I, I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a great debut. I have to, you know, marry you on that one, rather. Right I, uh, I'm, I'm of two minds. I, I think it's, I think it is kind of a good starter. Um, although my, my recommendation every time anybody wants to read a Stephen King book is go right to Pet Cemetery because mm-hmm. I'm going to say, you know what, you want to get scared, go for it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that's going to, that's going to scare you. This one doesn't really, you know, scare you. I, I feel like this is, um, <laughs> what I like about this book is the same reason I like like Steven Soderbergh movies. Is that like it, he messes with format, and like I think that's so interesting to be able to do that, and it's so reckless as a writer sometimes, especially like you know, as as, as any mode or medium. Like if you're messing with media or your format, like you're definitely trying to you're you're dan- you're risking you're you're dancing with risk, and for to go for to be a debut is just unreal. And again, this is his fourth novel that he technically wrote because the other ones didn't get published. And there's like another epic that he wrote. I think it was like The Sword and the Dragon or something like that. It's never been released. That has like 150,000 pages, 150,000 words or something like that. What? But um, yeah, like it's crazy huge. So he had he was like ambitious at, at that point already. Um, but what's interesting to see is that he was able to have that sort of, maybe it was Tabitha that helped him out with this and I'm sure he would he would definitely say that. Is that it? Did it shows like the, the the structure and the and how lean it is. You know, like Justin, you're always talking about like 90 minute movies is like great if you could do it in 90 minutes. Like I feel like this is a 90 minute movie, like in terms of a book. Yeah. Well, I think again to echo what Randall was saying about world building, which he does even Salem's Lot. We can get into that later on. He yeah. does an amazing job of world building in that town, and I think to a to a smaller extent, he does a great job of building just within the school and within the, the teachers and the students and then Carrie's home life. Yeah. I think it's an 
it's a very confident book, and I think it was the right. I know this is like you said, it was his fourth book. Yeah. This was the right one to publish as his mm-hmm. first book, and. Again, coming from the perspective of a 27-year-old, it's pretty daring to, to present it in the format he presents it in. Um, it's lean. You can read this book in a few days. So I think in that regard, it's actually a pretty good introductory novel. Mm. Um, he would write better novels, coming up pretty quickly, as a matter of fact. Um, but he would also write far worse novels. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to insinuate that this is somewhere in the middle, because I think this is still a very strong book, and it's one of his best books and, I mean, just when everybody says Carrie, you know it's Stephen King's Carrie. And yeah. I think there's a real power in that, too. Yeah. So I, 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 I loved it when I first read it. Twenty Carrie Fisher, rest in peace. I read it, you know, 20-something years ago, and I, I love it. I still love it now, reading it for the second or third time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely love it as well. It's hard to, it's almost hard to rank his books because, like you said, I... If we're like going numbers wise, it probably would fall somewhere in the middle. But I don't want—I don't say that to imply that it's a mediocre book or anything like that. We like Stephen not, King, so exactly. It's, it's, yeah. There's a lot, there's um, a lot more good and, than there's bad. And it does—it still does feel like somewhat of an an anomaly in his uh, canon, which I really appreciate. You know, it, it like you guys are saying, it, it values theme and um, relationships more over like distinct characters, if that makes sense. Um, I like the fact that. It, it it's so associated with the prom, even though it's not necessarily a book about the prom. It still has that classic King trope of, okay, we're, what what thing is scary? Is it a dog? Is it a clown? It, no, it's it's the prom here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think some of the, it's a little overwritten at times. I mean, I know we were joking about the pound cake stuff, but even the way they're describing the small of Billy Nolan's back, you know, there's a, there is a bit of that, maybe more so than later novels, even for as short as it is. There's a little bit... Uh, Randall, we talked about this. Uh, yeah, actually... Yeah, I think that this, yeah. Um, he may have been a little insecure as a writer still at that time. And I think, you know, we had discussed the idea that um, that maybe he was worried about being labeled as a genre writer. I mean, that that might be a huge... I, I don't think that he would ever admit to that, like, that he would be afraid of that. But there is the sense that he's overreaching a little at times in terms of trying to write... Uh, you know, dense prose. And this phrase really stands out to me, or this this little paragraph. Billy Nolan was at the pink fuzz-covered wheel. Jackie Talbot, Henry Blake, Steve Deegan, and the Garson brothers, Kenny and Lou, were also squeezed in. Three joints were going, passing through the inner dark like the lambent eyes of some rotating Cerberus. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just, it's Which, like, whoa, where did that sentence come from? Cerberus, uh, for all listeners, if you don't know, the three-headed dog from Greek mythology, <laughs> which is just kind of like... Well, there's also a sense of, this is in a lot of oh, earlier novels, where, he, where the narrator will, dis- will describe a situation, and then half a page down, we will hear the protagonist literally speak out loud mm-hmm. of what the narrator just described. Yeah. And again, I think that just comes down to a lot of overriding, a lot of... It's early, a young mistake, That's right? a young mistake. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's 27 is not much younger than all of us are, and so like it's kind of... It's kind of I mean, hey, none of us have a novel, right? As, <laughs> as far as I know. But no, so yeah, overall... I'm happy we start this. Like I, I absolutely do announce to everybody. <laughs> no, <kidding>. Yeah. No <laughs> yeah. novels. As we transition sort of out of the book, uh, I think that one thing we'd really like to do is uh, talk about what we call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is.
Uh, many of Stephen King's books are connected, whether that be by city, by character, by um, or by mythology, such as the Dark Tower series, which branches out into multiple uh, Stephen King books. So we like to talk about, you know, what callbacks are here, or, well, there's no callbacks here because it's the first book, but recurring characters, things of that nature. How does this connect to the larger Stephen King universe? And, um, you know, this being his first book, and he didn't really know the weight of it, um, there aren't many here, but uh, there are a few. So, Mac? Honestly, I, I don't know of any in terms of further books referencing Carrie. I mean, I think they maybe mentioned the town at one point being like caught in a fire or something. But um, what's really interesting is to see so many seeds planted here of future books. I mean, just the telekinesis theme and Firestarter, mm -hmm. The Shining, uh, and The Dark Tower, mm -hmm. you know, with the breakers. Um, which is uh, is really interesting to me. Um, but there are some really strange things in the book that made me think, well, uh, was he thinking of this in the, like in, during Carrie? Um, where like Norman Watson has a premonition that it wasn't blood, that it was blood, not paint. And she also talks about how she, she references a premonition she might have had when her brother was hit by a truck. And I thought, you know, that was very interesting that, uh, about the brother being hit by a truck because of really Halloran and The Shining and how he has that kind of premonition, premonition as well. Ultimately, there are these 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 things in the book that kind of mirror um, you know, things we'll see down the road, absolutely. I, it's interesting you picked up on it. I, I, one of the things, especially after rereading the, the Shining recently, is that it always seems like at least some characters have some sort of inkling of what's going on. That's like a mm -hmm. that that that's almost right. like a god vision. Like you do mention, like there's a, the Miss Desjardin. Like she goes, uh, she goes. Miss Desjardin cried out with surprise, and it occurred to her the whole damn place is falling in. That this kind of thing always seemed to happen around Carrie when she was upset, as if bad luck dogged her every step. The thought was gone almost as quickly as it had come, and it's just. It's, I mean, it's basically Stephen, you know, King Stephen King's way of just like kind of adding those little like sort of like teases to like mm -hmm. you know add some of the tension but it is something that peppers in throughout there because like like especially like when wendy starts picking up on what's going on with danny and then like you know then they become incredibly transparent about it but it always it, 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 he uses his characters to elevate the tension that way and i think it's kind of interesting how he does that but at some point you do have to wonder like jesus christ how many fucking people are this like this like <laughs> yeah. well, although, although in the shining uh, dick holleran does say that everyone has it to an extent yeah. right yeah. i mean yeah, and, he, and he says like your mom more so than your dad or whoever so and it's funny too because it's not yeah it's not like later books it's the where, old you know deja vu you yeah know, it's, it's a lot of that and it, it's it's not like later books where i mean technically the dark tower six you know ties together like every single one of his books but it's not like later books where, um, you know, when Cujo starts out, they reference uh, the serial killer from the Dead Zone. Carrie, I don't think, maybe we're wrong, doesn't do anything like that. And I don't think that later on anything references, oh, that town where the, you know, the high school burned down or whatever else is. But I think like Mike is saying, it definitely does set up some, some tropes and some themes and some uh, just like plot devices that will come into yes. play a lot but there are some specific ones that uh, i never thought about that i had been reading the complete stephen king universe mm -hmm. um which we'll is a great that. read we'll give a plug. um yeah i'll give a plug to uh stanley wyatter um it was probably you know pronounced something different um not to be confused with stanley Uris. yeah <laughs> <laughs> right uh christopher golden and uh hank wagner they talk about like what, what he points out a few things um or they point out a few things it's one of the obvious ones is that lewiston is actually referenced in the dark tower seven okay. and kingdom hospital the miniseries okay. um blue ribbon laundry uh where mrs white uh works is uh also in road work in uh, okay. richard bachman's road work 
the thing that's really interesting is really really crazy i didn't even think about this is that the demonic figure that mrs white refers to is always the black man there's a lot of dark man. And so you wonder, like, the black man appears to be an embodiment of evil. One might assume he's the devil, but it's interesting to note he's never referred to as Satan or Beelzebub or Old Scratch, only as the black man, recalling an alias of one of the, you know, the one and only Randall Flagg. He he had written a draft of the Dark Tower by this point. I think point, so. Yeah? I th- maybe I'm wrong, but did he start the Dark Tower in college? Yeah. yeah. So well, maybe. and the man in black, in a way, is even more so than the Crimson King, is kind of the embodiment of... of darkness tree evil right and yeah. so that and that's certainly a character or a theme that comes up in every single one of his books don't worry mom i know all about cannibalism i saw it on tv see it's okay you saw it on the television so let's move on to some of the adaptations um there are many many adaptations uh some yeah. some better than others uh, uh Definitively so. So why don't we start with sort of the, the creme de la creme, which I think is going to be the, the phrase of this podcast. Um, uh, the Brian De Palma film, um, uh, Carrie. I mean, I I've absolutely love this movie. Um, it might be uh, in my top three for De Palma. I, it's just so good. My, my, I mean, honestly, my only criticism I have of this film is the stupid, like, Hitchcock uh, references, like... You know, like the, the, well, no, I don't mind that. It's more like just like why did you have to use the psycho score, um, mm. which always he kind does of a little bit, yeah. he seems a like that's a, that's a diploma, issue. and, and that's a, honestly uh, the only the yeah, thing. exactly. But that's always been my my main criticism is it's just like he's so indebted to like it, to strings. Hitchcock. Either way, whatever. That's my only criticism yeah. of the movie, and that's a very small criticism. The thing that's that's great about uh, about De Palma's Carrie is that here's the thing. Carrie was set in 1979, mm-hmm. which you kind of forget about for, for a little bit. But it was set in 79. So which even mm. the film coming out in 76 predates the actual events that actually happened in oh, Carrie. What so what, what, what I don't see in any of the adaptations that, that happened since is that I feel like what's so important about De Palma's Carrie is that it's set during the time it's set in. And mm. I think that it's really important. I used the word antiquated before, but I think it's really important to, to, to stress you, here. It's funny that you mentioned the 70s specifically because King... We should probably share King's thoughts on you know so the adaptations if we know them. He talked, and I've never understood why this is a criticism. He's always said, "Oh, Carrie's a pretty good adaptation." Watching it now, it feels really dated. Now he's right, but yeah, I agree with you. That's what I love about it. It feels like a period piece. It feels it's, like it's yeah. the nineteen seventies, and it should feel like. And the 1970s. I love, I love that cheesy, uh, you know, music that's playing when they're getting ready for prom and at uh, during gym class and all that like that feels so much like a 70s thing and it, it ties back to the idyllic nature of everything which of course gets disrupted and, by and what was big in the that, 70s yeah. if you think about it, 50s nostalgia was huge because exactly. it's always by 20 so like you know i mean happy days was like the biggest show in the 70s and, or one of them. That a bit, and it like, does the darkness in the small town but that's and king's always been obsessed with that sort of like surrealism of the 50s of like and it's like almost like lynch that's why i've always like thought of like david lynch and king very similar which is why I always wish David Lynch would adapt one of his stories yeah. because it would be perfect. Because King, I feel, I feel like every one of King's setups or settings, at least for his early works, are all like basically like what he probably grew up with, which is in the fifties. So he was probably like thinking like, well, I'm gonna all my settings are going to be this basic American style American small town, town setting. And here, and here's one the more the more important things I I, I stress about with, when I was like writing my notes for De Palma's Carrie is that. What's he got the he got the luxury of not having this be known as the prom, mm-hmm. like the what happened, the incident, the moment. Mm-hmm. So like when you watch Carrie, 
the the film is so much more like I don't even I feel like the, the prom scene is so secondary to everything that happens in the rest of the movie like it it there's so much more innocence but that in my opinion is what makes everything so tragic when it does all go to hell at the yeah. end especially when it comes to Tommy well you get to see this girl at, who hasn't enjoyed any of high school suddenly start to enjoy it for a while yeah. I mean she like has a yeah. li- it's so sad about this and we all we all went to a drive through and saw Carrie around Halloween time and I'd, I'd seen the movie a bunch before but. It never struck me until watching it then on the big screen that it's... Randall called it a tragedy before, and that's completely accurate because you watch it and you're like, this girl gets to actually, for the first time in her life probably, enjoy being in high school and enjoy being in a social event with other enjoy kids. Enjoy anything. And you see that just gets stripped away. And what's really sad in the movie... The, this is a, little, a slight adjustment to the movie from the book. When they do that split screen, you actually see that in the movie, mo- for the most part, I mean, aside from the people who did it to her... They're not laughing at her at all, and she thinks they are, mm-hmm. and then that, and that's what leads to everything, which is a little bit different from what Mac was saying before about um, her getting enjoyment out of it, and it puts her almost in this fugue state, and that to me, make, it, it almost makes it more of a tragedy. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think one of the most interesting changes from the book to this film is um, Carrie herself. I mean, you know, Sissy Spacek is not what is described as Carrie, no. and... The book, she's mean, overweight she's, in the book. Yeah, right? she's chunky, pimples, colorless hair. I mean, well, maybe colorless hair. But um, I thought that was very interesting because, you know, in the book, she's not, she's not, this isn't she's all that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like when, when she goes to prom, like, she's like this stunner. Like, she goes to prom, she's probably dressed nice in the, the dress that she makes, but, like, she's not, like, particularly, like, blowing people away. So I thought that was an interesting change why they did that and also with Sissy Spacek's character being much more like you were saying at the end she's thinking that they're laughing at her but but they're not but whereas you know in the book I think a lot of people are and they even say that they did but yeah, it was more yeah. out of like what do you do in this situation yes. you know I remember my dad was telling me my hamster died he started laughing because he doesn't know how to handle <laughs> that kind of yeah. you know emotion to be, I don't want. I didn't want to bring this up, but Dad actually deliberately killed your. Mm, I was gonna say maybe, maybe he really just liked it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, right in front of us. No, yeah. no, I'm sorry. I think the casting of Sissy is is so perfect. Um, she, I mean, even though it does differ, um, it still works in terms of casting someone who can uh, believably play an outcast. Because um, I think with Sissy, she's perfect because. Uh, in the book, the way that, you know, when Tommy actually gets close and starts talking to Carrie, he mentions that, you know, there is a magnetism to her and there is sort of, you know, there is beauty there. And that, you know, and I mean, of course, you know, everyone's beautiful. But I think that um, beyond that, though, it's like, I think, you know, part of Carrie's, the, the fact that Carrie has that power and that there is something special about her, there is a beauty there and there is a magnetism. And that's why I genuinely feel like especially in De Palma's movie, and this is my favorite part, is that Tommy is, to the slightest degree, falling in love with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. so... Um, I mean, And I think that that's touched on in the book, but in the movie, the, my favorite scene in the movie is the slow dance. Yeah, absolutely. It is oh so God. beautiful. And like the music is great. The music is the perfect. Camera the camera swirls around it, and it, f- it feels so magical, mm-hmm. like that moment. And I'll talk about it in the remake, but it's 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 the biggest like disparity between those two is is the difference in that scene. I I totally believe in that moment that both of them are like in love with each other, yeah. and there is melancholy in that because you, yeah. I mean you know you know what's coming to a degree, and um. 
But I think that Carrie really, I think that Sissy works because she she is, you know, lanky and kind of gangly and very pale and her hair is very limp. And she's not conventionally beautiful, but there is beauty there. And you can totally see how she is that person that everyone overlooks. But if you get close, then you can really see sort of the magnetism there and that there is, you know, something like there is a, an attraction that's there because she is so unique in her own way. That that relationship is just so important. It's almost like, you know, because obviously this is basically just a reversal of the, not a reversal, but um, a subversion of the Cinderella story. But the way that De Palma weaves Tommy and Carrie together almost adds this sort of like Shakespearean sort of element to it that that scene is honestly all I think about every time I watch it. Like mm-hmm. when we went to go see it, it's funny to mention at the drive-in, was that, that all it was all I think was that like, why are we sad? And it's like, I think it goes right back to that scene. I'm not sure, but the more that because in that moment, they are absolutely separated from everything else, which is why I think the spinning is important. Everything's just a blur because the reality around them has just dissolved. And it's just in this one important moment, and and I don't really think you get that in the book. And for me, like I, I almost see like I almost love that moment than I love anything else about the than than, than the book, than the story. Like that that moment just like hits me, and I think a lot of it is, is just because I love that that music. Yeah. Um, but yeah. As the one you can't. Come on, come on. In your hand. Just put it right there. That's right. That? Yeah. Put this. Put this on my shoulder. That's right. Okay. Just relax. Oh, but there's some fun facts that I got to add some for for Carrie. Though. What are they? Yeah, I got I got some interesting stuff. So, for, one is um, does anybody want to make a, get, a wild guess of how much uh, money uh, King got for this film? None. Sixty bucks. No, uh, you gotta go a little higher. A dollar. Goes <laughs> to the dollar. Baby? I guarantee all of you that the paycheck that you get each uh, each month for work is is uh, more money than you got for this thing. It was twenty five hundred dollars. Oh, really? Yeah. Twenty five hundred. Although he attributes Does he get anything the, residual or anything like that. I, I I don't know about that, but he mm. he basically attributes is like if it wasn't for this film, he doesn't know if he would have became That's like true. a bestseller after that but some other ones that are interesting is um spacex was like full method in this mm. so she when she went to the audition she actually like put like vaseline in her hair and didn't wash her face for a few days um what's interesting also is that during the prom scene when they pour the blood on her that took like uh, a long time to film yeah and she refused to remove the blood off of her for a few days Damn. and so she would sleep with it and like came back on it with it also but she was married to jack jack ward i think and that is a longtime collaborator of uh, Brian De Palma. So I don't think she even wanted to necessarily do well, this to start out. Well, Carrie Fisher was rumored to be taken uh, to be involved also, and they then there was Carrie and Star Wars auditions at the same time. It, exactly. Yeah. Didn't De Palma fight for Sissy? Like I think the studio yeah. didn't want her. Yeah, he says that in the in the De Palma doc. Yeah, and and what's interesting also is uh, Betty Buckley, who played the um, the gym teacher, <laughs> when she slaps Nancy Allen, like that. Apparently, like De Palma, like. Uh, um, didn't like the takes each time and that was a real slap so she had to do it like 30 times so that scene where like he keeps slapping like she was she had it was like probably like in like the 30s or something like that like that she had already done it it's also notable that um De Palma actually goes a little bit darker than King when it comes to the gym massacre uh mainly with the gym teacher in the book Carrie lets her live I believe um either that but the gym teacher lives you know because she shows she's the one who showed us a certain amount of kindness to her um in the book uh or in the movie she's killed um and I and she didn't and she didn't know until they felt they started filming I think she gets cut in half like against the bleachers it's like it's not gory but it's like you know what's happening it's really sick yeah and um I think that that is 
is a very notable change because that sh- I think that in that shows that in the book there's at least some degree of um, cognizance to carry while she's doing the massacre, and then I think in the movie there's a certain um, you know like she's gone, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and um, it's just about it's just about you know laying waste at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, do we want to pivot this into the talk of the remake? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the last thing is that this is, uh, I mean, it's pretty wild to think that that both Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie were nominated for Academy Awards. Yeah. yeah. So, like, for King to go from writing this in the trailer to getting this public, to, to getting the manuscript later. to two years later, it's an Oscar-nominated yeah. film. I mean, that's, like, insane. Like, yeah. I mean, you pinch yourself. I mean, he grant, eventually he got, like, $200,000 um, from the sale because I think he he sold it to a paperback for like nothing or no sold it to hardcover for nothing but the paperback made a ton of money Um, so he got like 400,000 and like 200 of it went to uh, Doubleday and 200 went to him and I, I think like there was a funny anecdote where he like bought a he was so like Stunned that he bought like a um, a hair dryer for his wife <laughs> just to celebrate it but like that was it I mean like, and like, really you know it's just wild to think how far it went What's interesting, like the last one, last fun fact is that um, this was made for like 1.6. Although he, one, oh no, De Palma fought for it to get to 1.8 million, which is why they had to cut the stone scene. So it's a very low, low budget, which is why the special effects are like kind of like nominal in here. Which well, it is works, such a it's so tangible. Yeah, the, even exactly even the wires. Are oh yeah, through, you can reach out and touch those wires. Yeah, you can reach out and feel the fire. I mean, yeah. I Whereas like the 2013 that. remake has like like 40 million or something like that Speaking behind of, it or whatever. Um, you know. The 2013 remake of Carrie might be the most pointless movie ever made. <laughs> I'm not going to rail on it too much. I, I think that if I want to just get to the fundamental point of why I really hate the remake, it's that um, it it completely turns the story of Carrie into a revenge story um, instead of the story of a, you know, of a complicated young woman with telekinesis who, uh, you know is shunned to such a point that she is driven to, you know... Um, well, it's not even mass murder. It's, like, mass destruction. Yeah, yeah. It's, like... Uh, and, you know, we do, and she does say in the book that she takes enjoyment in watching some of them suffer, but it, there's such a detachment to the way she says that. Yeah. That's more about watching the world burn, you know? Yeah. It's not about getting back. Well, and also in, in the book and in De Palma's uh, version... The mass murder, the the massacre of high school students is not played for um, thrills. Applause. Exactly. Yeah, there's no it's, applause. Yeah, there's no yeah. applause. There's no, um, like, oh, this is awesome. It's tragic. It's really, really sad. I mean, in the book, it's because we've seen so much of, you know, Carrie's inner struggle. And also, um, you know, a lot of the students have been humanized. And, uh, and, you know, the thing is, like, the people who are really cruel to her aren't even really there it's i mean chris and and billy are hiding like she doesn't know they're there but in the movie they sort of show up they have all these other minor bully characters and we and like you know in in the in de palma's film we see some of the bullies you know uh die but it's not glamorized whereas they're they take moments in the remake to really glamorize the murder of the people who made fun of her like one guy um gets thrown into bleachers and and then he gets crushed by the bleachers and that's cool and all but it's such a glamorized moment and the way that it's framed is we're supposed to be like yes that guy was a dick you know and then like there's three other people that that happens to where it really fetishizes the murder of these high school kids and i mean that's 
fine in some. I mean, that's why you watch slasher movies. But this isn't a slasher movie. Mm-hmm. And this movie is so confused as to what it wants to be. Because it keeps, it keeps like, striving. Like, in the end, you know, when she kills her mother at the end of the movie, um, it, it kind of tries to play like it's actually about something bigger. But the emo- like every it's it's so confused and so poorly done and tonally off and um and then the i think like the biggest the absolute biggest like misstep no it's not the absolute biggest the absolute biggest i'll say right now is when the, <laughs> the pig's big, blood falls oh, the, yeah that oh, oh my and God. it's it's literally all cgi blood yeah and then here's a note CGI blood never yeah, looks good the way they do this scene yeah. is like watching like um, wild and crazy kids on Nickelodeon I had that thought it, it was just like a remix I was just like like it should have done that because they, they show it like three times three times crashing down on her because it's so that's again it goes it's right like having that mountain dew scream that yeah, exactly it's but like it's so self aware it's like three different here angles. it comes it's like, like here's what you've been waiting okay. for now the massacre begins aren't you excited yeah. you know and then like and then of course when she goes and kills Chris and Billy oh I mean we God. don't even see it happen I mean in the movie and in the book it's it's a scene where it, it kind of just happens yeah. like there's no there's no savoring their murder yeah. it's that's not what it's about and then in the Carrie movie God like it's, or the the, the, the remake it just takes forever. It's like Chris has to suffer, yeah. you know? She has to get killed slowly, and it's like, and Carrie just revels in it and is having the best time, and it's just kind of like, this is so not what this is supposed to be. I think what really just drives me crazy about the remake is how um, completely off they were with the casting. Um, Julianne Moore plays Carrie's mom, which is a great idea in retrospect, but, um, I mean, not in retrospect, I think just maybe it was a great idea at the time because, oh, Julianne Moore has a lot of emotions and she has red hair like Piper Laurie. But, and this is a big problem with the script too, is it's just all affectation and it's all screaming and, um, it's all, you know, maniacal and, uh, there's very little humanity there. And then, um, casting Chloe Grace Moretz is a fine actress, but, and I'm really trying not to sound like a neckbeard here. But she is, like, probably one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. And they pretty much just make her hair elegantly disheveled and put a flannel shirt on her. And that is what makes her an outcast. And it, especially when she goes to prom and she's dressed up, she is so beautiful. She's got paint on her overalls. I was just going to say, it's not, it's not another teen movie. Yeah. It's the same. God, they, nobody learns Oh, she's got glasses. Oh, she's got glasses. I mean, honestly, it really, it really feels like the remake was only made because they had a license to the material. Yeah. Maybe they knew it would make a little money and they go, hey, this is a female-centered movie. Maybe we can just cast a lot of hot chicks and have them, you know, and Isn't that's... King like the remake? Am I making that um, I things to say about it when it came out, I remember. If he did... I mean, I don't know. I, I can't get behind that. It is it is such a tremendously bad movie. Um, I will say that Ansel Elgort is um, a fine Tommy, um, but uh, the he's guy they cat. no and the no, and the guy they cast the guy they cast as Billy is so bad, especially when you measure him up against my man T. <laughs> John T. Um, so wickedly talented. Wickedly talented. John Travolta. Um, after that, the 
so so I think uh, if you're going to watch Carrie, please, please watch the 1976 version. And now we're going to move on to, um, there was actually a TV movie adaptation that was made, what, in 2002? 2002. This is actually kind of a fascinating movie. I, I watched it for the first time. I didn't know a lot about it. Mm-hmm. This is actually a backdoor pilot for a oh, TV series. interesting. That's interesting. Though. So weird. Two, Brian Fuller, executive produced and wrote it. And wrote the teleplay. Love the great Brian Fuller did Hannibal. Um, and some other, like, yeah, I think exactly. Dead Like Me and some other things like that. Um, <laughs> so keep that in mind as I, as I talk. I've got a lot of great notes about this. All right, so on the TV movie, um, we actually do get the opening with the stones falling from the sky. There's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the TV movie that does not happen in the 76 version. I thought it was kind of interesting. From a storytelling perspective, it's told in flashback. It starts off at a police station. And the great uh, David Keith, not Keith David, David Keith, <laughs> who was the father and fire starter, he's the cop. And he's interrogating various characters that survived. Officer and a gentleman. Indian in the cupboard. Um, Indian in the cupboard. The yeah, cowboy. Indian in the cupboard. Wow. Oh, my Dude God. In the cowboy. Um, kills himself in Officer and a Gentleman. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, so it, it, it takes place. There, it flashes back between. He's interviewing. We, he interviews Sue Snell. He interviews some of Billy Nolan's friends. And it goes back and forth between that and. So it's a little bit more accurate to the book structure. It is. And that structure wise, it really is. So, I mean, I want to once again say that this is not a good movie. But it's an interesting movie, and it, if you're gonna, you know how much I love remakes, and <laughs> they're always they're always warranted. But for me, if you're gonna remake something or do a different adaptation, do a different adaptation. Yeah, give us a different take, and, and in a lot of ways, this this does follow through on that. And the casting looks pretty good. I mean, Patricia the Clarkson is the mom, Patricia, is good. and that's the thing about Patricia Clarkson's portrayal of of, of Margaret Roll White is totally different from Piper Lord. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's much more reserved. It's a much I mean, she's still abusive, but it's a totally different take on it. She's much more reserved. She's much quieter about going about her crazy ways. Um, you've, you've got um, Angela Bettis as Carrie. She's from May, right? Which May, is which is casting, funny because yeah. even though May came out after this, apparently Brian Fuller saw her in May, mm. um, whatever dailies or whatever, however else he saw, it, and that influenced him to cast her in. Yeah, in Carrie. Oh, sure. um, <laughs> awful score by this Three Doors Down wannabe band. It, I'm not kidding. It's called Hypnogaja. <laughs> so please look up Hypnogaja if you can find anything about it. Um, they do have the principal fight with um, Chris's dad in that. There's some awful dialogue here, though. Um, Sue gets questioned about a character named Donna Kellogg, and she responds, Sure, every boy had a bowl of her cereal. Oh, um, Jesus there's a, there's a part later on <laughs> where Tommy's friend says, sarcastically, of course, Ooh, Tommy, you look good enough to eat. And Tommy responds, some would say I'm delicious. <laughs> now, what is going on here? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Though. It's at the prom. Um, the prom night sequence is pretty interesting, though, because you think for a second that Chris chickens out and does not drop the blood. And so they leave the stage, and they kind of do the slow dance, and all of a sudden, blood hits her hand, and you realize, oh, this is just a fantasy. This is not um, what's about to happen. Uh, Carrie's mother dies, just like she does in the book, with her heart be slowing down. That's cool. Um, now the twist here is <laughs> Carrie doesn't die. Sue helps Carrie escape. <laughs> and it looks, and I, I did some research, apparently this is going to take place like with Carrie trying to help other people with powers. Oh, Just man. sounds awful. Well, but again, it's a, it's a fascinating failure. It was an interesting failure to watch happen. And again, 
if you're going to do something again, do, do it different. different. Yeah. That's all I ask. And so in that regard, I thought, oh, all right, there you go. Now, I, will say, I watched this with Justin, and I will say, yes, it was very interesting. And in a lot of ways, it was very much more faithful to the book yeah. uh, to a certain extent. At least we got to see certain things that were not included in the drama yes. version. However, the ending is ridiculous. Oof. And you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, if this movie is Carrie, okay, who cares about the future of, of Carrie and Sue on the run? Like, what, mm. like, what are you going to do with that story that's going to make it interesting? That's not going to, that's going to be anything like Carrie. It's going to be it's like its own thing. And I understand that it leaves the possibilities like endless, but it, it was just such a mess. I, I, I don't like it. No, that's, and that's, and I, and I imagine they were trying to emulate, when, when, when did a USA's Dead Zone? There. Wasn't it 99 or 2000? It was around there. So probably like, well, you know, that's a hot property because it was a success. So like, I wonder if they thought that, but to your point, there is no more story. At least in the dead zone, they never get to the ending of the dead zone. Like they, they, you know, they, they let it stretch out a little bit so that he has his Because the dead zone, his... even in the book itself, you, you have a lot of instances of Johnny and, and dealing with other people and dealing with his powers. And they yeah. just, and I understand it. You spread that into a TV series. Well, Carrie's, Carrie's also... Making, Carrie's such a finite story. It takes place yeah. in a week. Carrie's yeah. about this girl getting ruined, you know? Yeah. And, that, and that doesn't happen. I guess you become, no. they become crime-fighting pals or not. Or not it sounded, it but, sounds yeah. something like that. Like yeah. it was just going to be one of these week-to-week network shows. Yeah, Maybe not, in his, doesn't she take her to Florida? It's something like I'm not kidding. I think it's right, Florida. No, I think it's like yeah. Florida, and, and it just makes no sense because you know Carrie's so rooted in this small town, and you know we've already a they and I will say you know with like Chris and Billy they do kill them just like in the book like it's like a, kind of like a non factor they don't try to glamorize a lot of that stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the prom sequence is actually pretty cool, yeah. but I will say. You know, uh, like, what are you going to do? The mother's dead. So, what do you? What does Carrie run? The, what are they on the run from necessarily? Except for, I mean, well, well she murdered the murder, but but I, oh, I will say. In, oh, in they the also version, do the whole town destruction thing, by the way. They do the town the destruction. The gas station thing. explosion. Really However, so. in in this version, she is absolutely, completely unaware of yeah. doing any of this, which is kind of interesting too. I don't know, guys. I think the idea of Carrie uh, surfing and hanging out in the beach <laughs> sounds, sounds like a cool cool show to me. Especially yeah. if they get like, a really cool lifeguard as like a friend. Yeah, just like some cool, cool lifeguard like, guy. Like, Tommy too. His name's like Charlie. Or Somebody yeah, like whistle lifts off of his chest. He's like, whoa. Well, that, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, this is actually a fun curiosity. Some people, a lot of people don't know this, was that um, there was actually an attempt made at making a state musical out of Carrie um, that I believe flopped back in the in the 80s oh, yeah. I, yeah and then um, it actually had a revival a few years ago in New York but uh, Max going to tell us a little bit more about that 1988 <laughs> some <laughs> brilliant human beings decided to make Carrie the musical uh, it was such a gigantic flop there's a book uh, titled Not Since Carrie Years of Broadway musical flops. <laughs> uh, no, it was just it was uh, it, it was apparently terrible. Um, and I, th- I think there's some bootleg uh, recordings of it that you can maybe get. I wasn't able to listen to any of that. I was only able to listen to the the 2015, uh, you know, reinvention, I guess, of that musical. Um, but it's interesting. Some things that that I wanted to talk about uh, about it. Um, the actress that was playing um, Carrie White's mother. Uh, decided to leave the opening night she was almost decapitated by a set piece <laughs> and uh, so she decided to leave when she did leave uh, she was replaced by um, the actress that played Betty Buckley yes who yeah. yes. played uh, Miss Discharging in the 76 in, version in the, yeah in the Palm version and um, so I thought that was very interesting um, 
What uh, it was so bad uh, in 2009. The score and the book were revised by the original composers. They went back, cut like six or seven songs out of this thing, uh, wrote new songs, and revised a lot of the actual book itself. Um, it did better. I, it actually got decent reviews. And honestly, listening to the musical, I was sitting there thinking this was going to be like a joke. Sometimes I, sometimes I was keying in on some things thinking... This is like an SNL sketch, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, just I mean, when they start talking, the music's good. The music's actually written really well, and it sounded like something that was written these days because they obviously they updated it. But when you're sitting there and they start talking, like you know, all right, Chris, get to class, you know, uh, you know, and, I mean, it's just it's 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 a oh, bar- it's, it's you can't help but laugh. Which um, so the, having been a fan of just being a fan of the book yeah. and the movie, and you're like, oh, this is kind of like when they redid it. Was it through the lens of it being campy, like they knew how bad it was, or is it no, actually considered to be? It's still taken yeah. very seriously, and I will give it credit. It does try to take itself very seriously. I mean, there are certain songs that are kind of like goofy, but like it really just like there's a song I think is like the world according to Chris, <laughs> and it's actually a really entertaining song. Oh, except man. when Billy enters, it's just kind of oh, gets no. totally derailed. Uh, so, um, however, I did want to talk about the differences between the book and the musical. In the musical version, Billy and Chris actually run on the stage and throw the blood on Carrie. Because every time they tried dumping the blood on Carrie, they were getting the mic soaked with yeah. the blood. And they, so they couldn't find a way to do oh, it man. that was going to work that way. Um, what a logistical nightmare. Uh, yeah, <laughs> what, I, seriously. I mean, I don't know how many times they tried to do that before well, they we, realized it. When we did our carry event at uh, the Music Box last year, that was kind of the problem we had, was that uh, the blood yeah. was going to go everywhere. So we had to, like, change the beads or something like that. But it was, like, red beads. Just red beads, like yeah. yeah. Even then, that went everywhere, too. Uh, a couple different things were um, in, the, in the musical, the father is supposed to have um, just left, left Miss White instead of died. And that was another reason why she was so angry at men uh, for just, like, leaving and all that stuff, you know, um, which I thought kind of changes her, her perspective. And also, Miss White is absolutely uh, loves Carrie in the musical. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole, <laughs> no, but there's a whole section. There is, I thought it was funny, too, but care, there really. is a section, there's a section, there's a song dedicated to, like, her actually talking about how, like, she actually does love her daughter and, and that she's worried about her. Whereas I feel like in the book, she just is like, she's a witch, she's a witch, she's a witch. Yeah. She's like, oh, from yeah. the get-go. There's never any really, like, sense that she really loves her. She feels burdened by her the whole time. So I thought that was an interesting thing to do. Also, um, she kills Tommy Ross in the musical. It's not the bucket. And, it's, you know, and maybe the bucket knocks him unconscious, but she is responsible for that. So I wonder why they decided to do that. Wait, she's responsible um, for the bucket? No, she's responsible for, for, for killing him. Well, how she does? You know, I, I didn't say. I, 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 I mean, guess technically that, she kills him in the movie or the other adaptations, but it's yeah. more like. Yeah. But, but she actually yeah. looks it, at him. Yeah, like, it just said oh. that it was it was implied <laughs> that she actually she kills Tommy. She probably looks at him or um, something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, also, and I guess the last one um, that I thought was interesting to bring it all back to to Billy. Tell boy. Uh, he's actually more reluctant in this version mm. to actually go through with it. He says, oh. uh, "Even for me, this trick is pretty damn sick." And uh, I, I just felt like it was interesting, whereas, you know, in the old version, you know, he's, he's really egging on Chris, and they're kind of all about doing it. And then this version, they clearly demonize Chris a little bit more. I mean, Billy's no piece of cake, but, um, you know, I, I just thought that was interesting. Mike? Well, I, I can't remember if it's in the book I, or in the movie. It doesn't, like, there has to be a moment. I think there is a moment in the book where Billy does say, like, hey, we do this. This isn't just, like, getting in trouble oh, by... Sorry. 
this is the real deal. Like if you if you turn me in, they kill you. That type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Happens in the book. It happens. Oh, I should mention that the the hunk in the 2002 TV movie is awful. <laughs> never do appear again in anything else. God I think he recognizes the gravity of the situation in the book and the other adaptations, but I think he, he I don't think he feels remorse. No, if no. he does feel remorse, no. it's just from like, oh, I, we're going to get in big trouble yes. if we do this. Yeah. It's not from like feeling bad for her. Uh, and then also really quickly, um, there was actually, uh, someone tried to get a, the rights. This guy, Eric Jackson, tried to get the rights to do the 88 version of the musical, but was turned down. So he actually went to Stephen King and got sanctioned to do a play version, mm. which I haven't read anything about, and that's something for, oh, like a straight play? Like not go, a musical? Yeah, just a straight wow. play, not a musical. Um, but they actually did revise it into another version in 2015, Jeez. which was environmentally immersive. What? And it was retitled Carrie the Killer Musical Experience. I don't know. It, it was just like kind of like a one-off, one-off deal, I think, somewhere. But it got pretty good reviews and things and I, I was wondering how how was that and I don't know if it was like I think well, we you, did it at, I'm you know, assuming... at the gym somewhere down the street or if it was just you know one of those um, you know a lot of these plays coming out lately with uh, where you're like involved you're actually mm-hmm. in the, the in the experience like um, it's like you bring a bring a sheet with you because there's gonna be blood on you if you're in the first row yeah that could be fun though yeah, I, I see, think yeah. if, from the title of it, it sounds like it was probably played up as like a high camp let's have a good time let's drink some beer and watch this musical I hope uh, Gallagher played Carrie <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, Great way to end on the yeah. Let's <laughs> move on um, to everyone's favorite sequel, The Rage. Carrie two. two. I like how it's not Carrie two. The Rage. Yeah, it's yeah. The Rage. It's two. fun. Can I say something before? You, yeah, I've yeah. never seen the movie myself, but every time you leave the Charlotte Douglas International Airport, you're on the little. You, you see all the movies that are made. They're like three: The Dale Earnhardt Story, and there's always a poster for The Rage. So Carrie two. Proud. The proud. The proud uh, home of Where, Rage. Uh, Carrie two. Is um. The beautiful state of North Carolina. Which is interesting because in the 76 version, the action is switched from Maine to North Carolina. Oh, is it? I thought it was California. Is yeah. it? Is it supposed yeah, to be North Carolina? Uh, it was filmed in California, right? Yeah, filmed. It was filmed in California. But it's supposed they, to be North, North Carolina. Weird. Well, because I think back then, nobody cared about Maine. <laughs> <laughs> but North Carolina was a hot... But that was a hot Maine That's before... Stephen, that was before it was a state. That's before um, Stephen King put Maine on the map. So, The Rage, Carrie 2. I had seen a long, long time ago and, and hated it, and so I rewatched it for this. Now, I will say, the way that we were talking before about the original Carrie being a kind of an antiquated 1970s film and, and it being stronger for that. This is very much a late 90s film, 1999. Whether it's stronger for that, I don't think so. But if you, I will say, if you do go into viewing it like that, like, okay, this is from the I Know What You Did Last Summer Scream era, it does have a certain charm about it. It's not a good movie at all, but the, the soundtrack alone, I mean, it's all these awful 90s bands, the fashion, the way the bullies are portrayed, it does, I mean, we all grew up during then, so like it, it does speak to that. Once again, that doesn't mean it's good. Um, I mean, it has like two American podcast members, uh, which this is filmed before that. But you have Mia Sabari, who that's kind of the inciting incident. She kills herself in the beginning because uh, she discovers these football players are like keeping tallies of uh, of how many girls they've had sex with, and she's one of them, and she gets ridiculed. So she like, jumps off a building onto a car, and her head slams into the window, and it's like super bloody. And she happens to be Carrie's—not Carrie, sorry, Rachel Lang's uh, best friend—and that's what sort of like sets everything off and 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 i will say the football players this like scorebook they're keeping it is based on a real event that i think happened in california um or something like that just happened like last year i mean it's a pretty common thing you know it does go back to this thing of like the bullies and this definitely are stereotypes but like 
those sort of assholes in high school do exist. However, they're all being played here by like thirty-five-year-old, you know, <laughs> hunks and Zachary Ty Bryan and Z- ZTB from Home Improvement, <laughs> who's not doesn't make a bad bully, but you know, he has lines something to the akin of, like, "Hey, d- didn't she just know that she was some pump, or was she a? Did she isn't think it, it was a relationship? This is some ridiculous thing that she's like the sister of Carrie because of the father. She's, yeah, half sister. So, oh, like so no s- sense whatsoever. <laughs> so but. Sue Snell in this, Amy Irving reprises her role. She um, is the guidance counselor, I think, or principal. I can't remember of, of this school. And she shows Rachel that um, you know she her she is the same father as Carrie White, and she kind of tells her about it. So it is a true sequel. In that I mean, they even do like the Jaws: The Revenge thing of there being like visions of the of, of the first movie, like which somehow this girl sees. Yeah, 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 actual footage. Yeah, which I guess technically she if she's uh, has telekinesis and is te- carry telepathy, maybe she could somehow recall it. I don't know. No, I think it's just bad filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> did, did Sue go there to like seek her out? Or something? No, no, or no. She, she just like happen happens to be there. well. I guess like. I have to be honest, I didn't pay a ton of attention to the second time watching. I guess maybe it could be argued that like she had sought her out and like became at the school to keep an eye on her. So there's not much that's good about this movie. It's I had to say it's not it's not like that much worse than like urban legends or any of the uh-huh. shit that came out around that era. Um and and it was funny when you were talking about the remake being um being a story of revenge rather than, you know, being this tragedy. This very much is that because the movie is so is bad and I knew it was bad going into it. There is somewhat of a B movie thrill to the final massacre scene, yeah. like just in cool, like <laughs> it, going back to the nineties thing. It's at a house party, and you know she falls in love with Jason London, who's kind of like the Tommy Ross of this, and they actually have a legit relationship. But the other football players don't like that, and they broadcast, they secretly videotape them having sex, and they broadcast it, and they bring up ass pimples. Like, oh look, there's a pimple on her ass oh, again. So anyway, um, it's there at this go. house party that they show this video while she's dancing. And then she loses it. So it's kind of like a Freddy's uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 thing where she just massacres all these people at a pool party. And the way she massacres them is kind of fun. I don't know. There's, um, she <laughs> levitates a bunch of CDs yeah. that are like CGI. It's so nice. And it's her, so like Hellraiser 3. And, like the CDs. Yes, the, right. The, and yeah. it reminds me. <laughs> know what it reminded me of? Maybe it's because I was drinking my coffee from a Ninja Turtles mug. It reminded me of that pizza launcher toy oh, like yeah. from the um, <laughs> in the 90s for Ninja Turtles where you put these little discs in. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny too because like I, I, I guess if it was flying fast enough it could kill you. But these CDs are just like, like flying oh, yeah. in people's head and killing them. And then... The, the, I guess the house they're at, like, they're, it's California or whatever, so, um, or I guess, or it's Phil, North Carolina, I guess, but maybe oh. it's supposed to be California. Um, the dad of whoever lives there is, like, a, a scuba diver and a fisherman. So they have, like, spear guns everywhere, so they start, like, fighting oh, her geez. spear guns. But it's kind of cool. I mean, it's gory as hell. Like, it's a hard R. And she does this thing, the tragic end of Sue Snell, is she levitates a spear gun. Sue Snell's, like, going to the house to try and stop her. It's weird. Like, Sue Snell never is, like, mean to her or anything, and... No. But she gets this grisly death. Carrie levitates a spear gun to like kill one of the main bullies, and she like fires the the spe- the harpoon or whatever, and it hits him and impales him through the head through the door. And as Sue's trying to go in the door, it impales her too. So they like both die with like hang like they open the door at one point. And they're both hanging connected by this like a harpoon. So I mean, no, it's kind of fun. So like it's it, if you go into it knowing it's a if you go into it knowing it's a really horrible movie. Like, it, like, it's a bad movie. The Final Massacre is kind of fun. I mean, they do, like, it, it's a classic thing of, oh, we're going to we're gonna find out just really creative ways to kill yeah. people with all this stuff. Sounds like real rage. So, yeah. So, here, and here, it, it's, uh, I'll tell you how I watched this movie. Yeah. Um, so, back in uh, 98, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, 99 came out. It was 99. Yeah, it was 99. Um, 
I had been applying to high schools uh, for because my I went to uh, I was in Florida, so they want my parents wanted me to go to private school, so I had to go to St. Thomas. You know, it was like one of the only Jews in um, all of Catholic school. <laughs> so really exciting to get into this high school. But I got denied that day for the first off because I just like bad with your assessing. So I remember when all my friends had already agreed to go to office space. Yeah. And oh, we went to go sit in, we were sitting in office space and I just was not having it. Like it's now one of my favorite movies, like one of my favorite comedies. Um, and I think it's probably the smartest it, it comedy of the nineties. Um, I think, space. Oh, it's, it's a much, but it's, I think it's the best comedy of the nineties, but I, I would say, but in that movie, about 20 minutes in the office space, I was like, I can't fucking watch this movie. Like I, yeah. it's just like the mundanity of it is just like driving me nuts. All I can think about is this fucking, uh, rejection letter. So I like, I, I like left my friends and I just like, I, I like was in the hall of like this like huge cineplex and I saw like rage carry too and i'm like you know i was like a huge horror like buff or whatever so i like i went to go see it and i i remember like i missed like maybe the like, first 10 minutes or whatever and i just was watching this and just being like this is like such a depra- like because it's so oh. dark and like monochrome it, it and like cold like... yeah it's like it's very depressed it was kind of like a perfect movie to watch at this moment yeah but I have I have not seen it since. You know how we were talking about some villains having complexity and stuff. The hunks in this movie are just like the the moment you see them, they're like the moment you see it, they're like they're like all gathered at the lunch table. They're pointing at all these girls like, oh, you banged her last week, right? Oh yeah, I banged her. Blah, blah. Like they're just such dogs in this movie, and it's it's kind of like yeah, no, it, it really is like a, it does sound it is almost like that. And if you go into it going okay. The hunks are awful, like, the deaths are bloody, and the movie's tragic. It's very watchable. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's just boil it down. Uh, what's better, The Rage <laughs> Carry 2 or Goodfellas? Uh, probably Goodfellas, I think. And on that note, I think uh, with that definitive statement... Yeah. Um, I love that we ended this first episode talking about The Rage. <laughs> it's perfect. I think it's a good ending. I think, um... Because uh, it is, you know, the definitive ending of the Carrie story. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, also, it also shows like how perverted Stephen King's works can be. Oh, he gets yeah. a lawnmower man eventually, oh, but Jesus yeah. Christ! Like. But uh, yeah. So, anyways, thanks so much for tuning in to our first episode of the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. Uh, we'll be back again in two weeks with Salem's Lot, uh, that classic story of vampires. Oh, Avanti, <laughs> suck your blood. I want to be on your podcast. <laughs> And, um, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And, uh, you know, um, we appreciate it. Consequence Podcast Network.